Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Kajem Aratatu, welcome back, Frater Demna. Kajem Aratatu. It's uh, really great to have you back on Magic Without Fears. Last time you were in rural Ireland while I was up a rural Canadian mountainside and our connection was less than stellar. So this is awesome for you to let me have uh, what I'm not calling a round two, but a redux. Frater D, redux. Yes. Uh, sure, why not? Why not? Uh, we chat, put the world to right. And so you, uh, you're still out in Clare in, in Ireland. Still in the back end of the world, living in an old farmhouse. It's a wonderful place to be. Um, you know, if you live in the middle of nowhere and have no services or culture to speak of, you make your own. And that means you do weird shit like magic. Yes. Yes, it does. Hey, before we talk about magic, have you been to that, that trad pub in Scarif um, near where you live, right? Um, with all the, the the art on the walls, 
like poetry and art on the walls. I forget what it's called. No, apparently it's an amazing trad pub. I was sussing it out when I was on my way to the Walder School there to to start a job, right? And I was making sure there was a good trad pub. Of course, I never got there because I went to Anishmore and joined a band, um, as one does. As one does. (laughs) It's Ireland, right? Um, yeah. Exactly. How how could you say no to living on the Aran Islands and getting paid to play music every day in a garden? Well, this is very much a thing. Uh, like life here brings what it brings. I did learn a lot from just being in that rural culture. Like it was a shock to my system on many levels, and like they would constantly tease me about not looking like a magician or a musician <laughs> um, and, uh, and looking like some preppy academic kid from Canada, which I was. So, you know, um, I, I didn't have that sort of music style or, uh, or the, that kind of vibe of the, the rural Irish musician at all, but I, but I enjoyed the music. So I stuck, stuck it out despite uh, uh one of one of the band members coming back he had run off i joined the band because this is apparently a very irish story which i might have told you last time but again the recording was rough um the one i joined the band because one of the band members had just run off from the band the concertina player had run off to go live with a woman in a caravan in cork and apparently that's extremely irish behavior he just fled left his job left the band vanished to a caravan in cork such is the nature of musicians also, you know, you're going to work on something together and next thing they're gone off to Australia for five years or something. Um, <laughs> oh, the Ramblin' Rovers, eh? You uh, mad Irish folk. Uh, artistic temperaments uh, are not easy to tame. No, no. So he came back and eventually I left Inishmore and went into Galway to have a real life which was cool I wish there how long were you actually living here well I moved into Galway then booked a tour around Europe uh did the tour went back to Canada recorded an album did a tour while while having my place still in Ireland um in Chantala and then went back and then just back and forth up until 2000 end of 2008 i moved up to belfast and stayed there uh through 2009 but the recession was so bad i just had to leave like there there even the jobs i had moved there for and and the work was had dried up so um because i could work that it worked there legally um in the uk but yeah the recession was pretty rough Woolworths closed down you know and then me and my girlfriend moved from the uh oto oasis in belfast uh, back to vancouver to uh enjoy the olympics and uh the uh the recession wasn't so bad in canada so so it was possible to still really get by there a lot better you know Uh, more money i was also living up north at around that same time a little bit involved with anthroposophical circles and also with i suppose these telemic groups not quite an oto it was uh something called the Ordo Templi Orientis Foundation, which was sort of an offshoot of OTO or some such weird shit. But it was pretty much the only sort of lodge-based system that was available in Ireland at the time. So, yeah. And yeah, was that connected with the OTO Oasis that I knew? 
I, I think we're talking about the same thing because what okay. happened was there, there, we're talking with Sean. Yeah, there's a whole story behind that. So there was, uh, I think, what is it? Frutter Prospero was sort of in Manchester and he got kicked out of the OTO for, I don't know, something to do with his AA lineages and was also a little bit, bit of a dirty old man. And uh, so the whole Irish group that was very connected with Manchester left with him in the sort of mid-90s and activity continued here, even though they weren't connected with the OTO. And then when a new organization was formed, they joined that, I think it was laterally called the Talima Foundation or something before it was closed down. Um, so the, yeah, it's one of those sort of splinters of splinters of uh, like the Judean people's front kind of thing. Well, yeah, I'm, I, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm more a people's front of Judea sort of, sort of guy. Uh, people take it all very very seriously and then looking back at it you just go wasn't that just all ridiculous yeah yeah absolutely um they they didn't have much contact with their source of origin or any leadership they were pretty much independent i mean some of the oto guys or what i would have called the the oto adepts were of course aa adepts this is not my yeah. realm of expertise of course but uh they were awesome like i joined them for lunacy games and then you know sh showed uh, did some lessons on on history on banishing rituals on invocations and stuff like that because they they actually didn't have those those that much exposure to that especially varieties or theories behind it or kabbalistic roots and so they were very welcoming and that was really cool um but yeah the the people do take this stuff very seriously and you've had experience in both the oto world and the the gd world um but i'd say telemic world rather than the oto so world I, even as i said it i knew i should have said telemic <laughs> so, so you're, uh, you're a golden dawn telemic lover of of anthroposophy and steiner's waldorf schools and communities you're all that stuff plus Irish mythology casserole of heroes, Yeats initiations all rolled into one, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it's also an evolving picture over a period of time. So when I was young, I came into contact with anthroposophical sort of life sharing communities with Camp Hill communities, which were sort of sort of hippie idealistic communities where you live together with people with special needs and yeah, it, it was all nice and good. And, you know, I was queer. So like the whole Christianity thing was a little bit jarring. So like Roman Catholicism in Ireland was quite a repressive sort of environment. So I, heard I encountered, yeah, yeah. So I, so I encountered the whole Thelema thing and it was like, okay, yeah, that sort of, I suppose there's something almost juvenile about it. Like, throwing your rattle out of the pram it's like uh all of the old laws are abrogates uh you know do it thou wilt there, there is something you know quite powerful but also a little bit adolescent about it i've thought about that a lot actually you know um sometimes like there's an element within that aeon of horus ideology that that speaks very loudly of the same ethos of the aquarian age right the throwing out of the yeah. rules the the pronouncement of the self over the 
you know, the cult of personality or the cult of savior, become your own savior, become your own star of that firmament. Firmament. Yeah, but it is, of course, all that's a, that that brings with it a new challenge. I didn't, sorry, I didn't hear you. What do you say? Yes, firmament. Yes. Um, it brings with it a new challenge of uh, like of challenging our maturity, right? So that might be an issue in the future, right? As we try to, like, you see all these people sprouting up as, as gurus and tarot readers and psychics, and that's all well and good. Um, but the new challenge it brings with is along with that personal power comes personal responsibility for managing your power as well as evolving within it. Because when you're in a group, you can evolve within it in a different yeah. way than you can on your own as your own leader of your own thing. It's like, it's like, okay, so you don't, you want to do no Kabbalah and just start initiating yourself uh, using some Thelemic version of Enochian magic. I was talking to my buddy uh, on the whole rabbit podcast and he's working with some guys that are like that. And they're like, oh, your buddy RC will hate this shit. It's like, why would I hate it? It's just not what I would do. But like, hey, if it works, then the proof will be in the pudding. Now, if all your lives fall apart and you all go nuts, then maybe you made a mistake somewhere. But go for it. Like, put your own system together using all the rubrics and pieces that you have available. But with that comes this personal responsibility to try and still grow within it and make it functional and, and still have an effect of improving you and improving your life. So, so yeah, and that's all on you now. This whole question of Thelema is quite funny in a way, because on one hand, it is do what thou wilt and sort of this liberal magic that you think would be quite akin to chaos magic in a lot of ways. But then you have all of these people dissecting that by Nusha of Alistair Crowley's life as if it's the most important thing that one, one could possibly look at as a magician and disappear down rabbit holes of sort of theories or it's 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 like in the golden dawn when people only do the lesser ritual the pentagram and they never get any further than doing the lesser ritual of the pentagram because that's that that's what the practice is that's what's prescribed and right so Talima should be this very dynamic thing in a lot of ways but isn't necessarily and you have these two tendencies. You have sort of this juvenile sort of youthfulness that people come into Salima and people either grow out of that or they grow enough within themselves to have a more sort of nuanced view of the world. But if you were going to just do like one ritual for the rest of your life, wouldn't the ritual, the pentagram, be a pretty good one to do? Yeah. I suppose, but are you really doing any magic per se or anything developmental? I mean, even like, I don't know, the, the major magical textbooks that most people worked on until very recently only had a lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram. And its sole purpose was to get rid of. So, I mean, I'm sure you've come across this paper, but in the original Golden Dawn paper, the lesser ritual of the pentagram was given in its invoking form. We're and talking about the Polexfen document, aren't we? Well, we're talking about any document that comes from the original Golden Dawn or the Alpha and Omega. 
but yes, it appears in the Polfoxen documents, also in Yates. In... Is that how it's actually pronounced in Ireland? I have no idea. Yates is, yeah, that, it's a strange uh, family name, uh, isn't it? Especially for Ireland. Yeah, but, you know, it's Yates, Yates is Anglo-Irish. So. Yeah, right. Yeah. Huh. But, but anyway, yeah, that, that whole original Golden Dawn corpus, the original paper said as much as, here's the invoking form, postscript, banishing form is the same thing with pentagram in the other direction. And then there's a note at the end. I can't remember, but I don't have it to hand, who wrote that note. It was one of the female initiates of the original Golden Dawn that basically said, you know, the lesser ritual, the pentagram, should be performed in invoking form in the morning and in banishing form in the evening. Yeah. So, I mean, so, so let's talk about that. So basically, you had an opening up in the morning in the same way that you might open your chakram, for example. Um, so that one is encountering the world by invoking initiatory forces that come towards you. And okay. then the opposite, at the end of your day, you're banishing, you're closing off, you are, because the Golden Dawn is big on control. You choose the experiences that you have. So in the oath of the neophyte, included in that is that you will not come under undue influence of intoxicating substances or of um, mediums or of all of these kinds of things, which is basically to say, keep control of what you're doing. So Golden Dawn is big on control. So part of this is, okay, I make an active choice to invoke in the morning and I encounter the world as, I suppose, an extension of my initiatory journey. Yeah. And so that so, encounter changes as you go through different initiatory journeys as well. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. And, and look at it the other way. Like banishing as it was encountered in like, I suppose, ceremonial magic, certainly around the 2000s, but going back, certainly as far as Rigardi and Alistair Crowley, there was an excessive focus on banishing. And what happens if you only banish? So well, Farrell says on his blog that you could demagnetize your aura. And I'm not sure what that means. I'm not quite sure. In, in the whole concept of the sphere of sensation is a little bit uh, <laughs> ethereal, isn't it? But, <laughs> well, it, it's a word for an aura. It's another word for an aura. The There's a reason Zaleski puts in parentheses aura afterwards, because that's essentially yeah. what we're talking about. But when I think of it, I think of Steiner, because Steiner talks a lot about the uh, practical expansion of your aura. He was convinced that you could expand it up to 30 feet at command if with practice. And since I was a child, I practiced expanding and contracting my aura, of course, which led really well into like poor breathing for through Franz Bard. And when I got that, when I was 14, 15. And so I combined those Steinerian exercises with, with then Franz Barden and then brought that fully. And then that really exploded because I, but I couldn't fit that stuff much. I didn't know how to fit it too well into my pagan druidic practices. But then when I found the golden dawn rituals, I was like, oh, I see how 
uh, psychic development or sensitivity training directly is in, in connected and intertwined with this ritual system. That was what was really interesting to me. And that's why the term sphere of sensation I found useful beyond aura, because I don't see the aura necessarily as something that is, um, that in its phraseology encompasses the full extent of what you can do with your energy. Whereas I find the term sphere of sensation denotes the full range of whatever it is you can do with your aura, hence whatever it is you can do with the sphere around you through which you can sense things. Well, what you can perceive and also what you can develop. So you also have this idea of a body of light in Crowley, for example, that you're essentially creating an immortal body. And Steiner has essentially the same thing that our, what Steiner calls a physical, etheric and astral can be transformed into higher spiritual aspects through mm. active spiritual work so that one creates a corresponding immortal body that outlasts our individual lives. And that is what uh, travels with an initiate or an occultist or an ambition, however one wants to describe this individual so that one is creating an inscrutable or eternal body by doing active work to transform what are innate subtle qualities into yet yeah, developed actively cultivated qualities. And because you can cultivate these things, it means you're not always starting from zero the next time you arrive. If you buy into the reincarnation, um, sort of model of things yeah yeah i mean the idea that you didn't do all this work and you go back to zero is a very appealing thought yeah yeah it is um but yes so if you have constant vanishing you had people being prescribed okay you're going to do an invocation of pan first you're going to you know, you have this God of nature and of everything. First, you're going to banish the place where you are, turn it into essentially a vacuum where there are no spiritual beings. Then you're going to do an invocation of Pan. Then you're going to do banishing directly afterwards and not allow anything to coalesce or to form around that. After doing, you go banishing, invoking, get rid of it as quickly as possible so that there's no possibility of actually interfacing with any outcome short-term or long-term mm -hmm. so then that's how i look at banishing because you see it done before things after things in between things like it's it's and and if you look well where was that in older practice like yeah i mean you, yeah, it comes across very clear in in certain prayers especially like the breastplate of saint patrick right Yes, so that is both strengthening and protective, but protective isn't banishing. It's not, say, get away. It is uh, asserting one's own sort of realm of activity in the same way that a magical circle does. What, what you do find is purification as a concept. So this idea that one must be properly prepared, raise one's vibration, spend some time preparing, whether it's baths of hyssop or whatever. 
And purification, of course, leads us to think we have to get rid of something. But when this term is used in Judaism, and if we're honest, a lot of the magical legacy, even of the grimoires and so, is Judaic. One is speaking actually about essentially raising one's vibration, for want of a better term, or coming closer to God. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, like, that's always been the model I've ascribed to, more or less. So that's been my experience, that it, that's what it feels like, you know? Mm -hmm. So, like, this overemphasis on banishing is something that I think ruined an entire generation of magicians because they never got to experience anything tangible because they got rid of it as soon as they'd invoked it. Yeah, yeah, I definitely noticed that in my experience. Um, there was, um, yeah, maybe, maybe there, you, maybe it's over. It was over caution, perhaps, or maybe it was from some. It was disbelief that more could happen. Um, but I really do wish that, like, in our order and in our temples, there had been more emphasis on. We were very focused on the on the theurgic and the the theosis of the self and and divinization. There was very little focus on manifesting and making your life better with magic. None of that sort of thought thaumaturgical. How can you improve your life? How can you improve your environment? How can you help people? And if, you know, maybe some light elemental work, but it was it wasn't a serious focus, and it mm. probably did lead a lot of people that left or that finished their training and then just gave up on magic um, because they never got a chance to see uh, what you could do fully with it at the higher levels. And, I, and I've thought a lot about whether or not that was a good or bad thing. And now I'm sort of erring on the side of, I think that might've been a bad thing. Maybe did it, did it weed out people that might've been irresponsible if, once they, if, they, if they had been shown that level of work, maybe but also it's a way to disinterest someone if you have them spend years and years doing training, but never do anything, shall we say, that's fucking cool. Yeah. And there's so much cool stuff to do. It's almost a shame not to explore it. In my little group right now, we're, we're going through a, a purist approach to the heptarchia and we're having so much fun. It should be fucking criminal. <laughs> like, you know, it's so much fun. And uh, to, to hold back that kind of work from people, I think is a shame and doesn't benefit our tradition. And you were, you're hinting at that when you talk about people not moving beyond the LBRP, right? Essentially, yeah. I mean, so from sort of, sort of these early Telemic orders, I, there was a form of a Telemic order that morphed out of that, the Ortwil Aranoch, or the Irish order of Salima. My now, the Irish, the Irish Order of Thelema was Thelema with shamrocks, for want of a better term. I love it. <laughs> Sign me up. So you, you had... Um, Did you replace Horus with an Irish god? Quintessentially, yes. Yeah? Who? Because the Trinitarian in Thelema of Nui, Tadi, Drahurkuit are archetypes you could also call them very easily by other names. 
like you have Danu as a star goddess or Boand as a star goddess. You have, I don't know, as Hadith, you can have somebody like Adrua, the Dagdamor. Yeah. Is uh, force and fire. Uh, with, I don't know, Rahukuit, you have this uh, image of the eternal child, this radiance, this, uh, I mean, Lu is a very obvious example of that kind of uh, direction. Yeah. But this, this organization was special for a number of reasons. So at the earlier work as an OTOF began a reformation of initiations to come under an Irish cosmological system, uh, which took as its model the five provinces. And those five provinces are, have particular tributes in the Irish tradition. So mm -hmm. there is knowledge in the West, battle in the North prosperity in the east, music or harmony in the south, and sovereignty at the center. Mm -hmm. And within the, within the Irish magical tradition, you have a number of things that overlay that very nicely. So for example, the Oum is five times five, including Forfeda, his special Oum. Yeah. Uh, Oum, I should explain, are is a indigenous form of writing in Ireland um, that have the names of trees, each of the letters, but is used in a very similar way to Kabbalah. So you have bird ohms and tree ohms and word ohms. So it's more like a system of correspondence as much as it is an outer alphabet. Yeah. And this would this the main remnants of that we have mainly carved onto rocks, especially along the natural lines of rocks, right? What remains of it, and also in the mythology, there are references to it being carved on wood yeah. uh, for magical purposes. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, I've been enjoying the last while this amazing book by a woman from Washington on on Om. And uh, it's quite remarkable, actually. I'll uh, have to get, well, yeah, I think I'll have to find you the title. But it, uh, especially for, is there, are there many, many books that, have, that are good that have come out of Ireland on Om that you recommend? Um, there, there are a couple of books that I recommend, particularly if one's doing this more hermetic work with this system correspondence with directionality as part of the work. There is a book by the by a man by the name of John Paul Patton, who wrote it as his um, adept exempt thesis in the AA. And it is basically a book of correspondence of the Ohm, everything from pentacles to correspondences to music, to directional correspondences, to the oh, development wow. of Ohm tablets in the same way that you would have Enochian tablets. No way. Um, is it, that available? Uh, it's, I think it's still sold on Lulu if you look for the poet's OM, O G A M, rather than with a H. Yeah. But the I will anyway send the link the for that. The poet's OM. Poet's OM. And it's a wonderful book in that it doesn't pretend to live in the past or be like the perfect historical reenactment, but to look at historical sources and gather all that information and then go, 
okay, what can we do with this now? So it is a manual of magic. It has ritual, it has talismanic work, it has uh, correspondences in the same way as, you know, corresponding to 32 paths of wisdom and the tree of life, for example. And there, there are just innumerable ways, a system of divination based on the geomancy of the island of Ireland. It's, it's an extraordinary book. It really is. Um, and probably yeah. one of the best on Ohm that has come out of Ireland. There are a few others like uh, Niall McCoycher's work, uh, which he wrote a book called Irish Trees and another one called Irish Herbs that corresponds trees and herbs to the Ohm. But it's yeah. an ongoing conversation, I suppose, in terms of how that system would work. And then you have the other layer, which is um, the four masters that we are told about in the Yellow Book of Lekin. Um, so that come from four cities and that have the four treasures of the Tua de Danon, uh, being um, yeah, the cauldron of Dagda, uh, being uh, Leofal, the stone of destiny, uh, being on Cree of Solace, or not on, yeah, on Cree, no, not on Cree of Solace, where have I gone, on Clea of Solace, there we are, sorry, I have Creeves on my brain, on Clea of Solace, uh, which is the sword of light, and uh, then the spear that roars for blood, these four weapons, and are what are described as four magicians, of the Tua de Danon that teach them all of their occult knowledge and magic and things like this. And these are named as Morfasa, as Ischias, as Esras, and as Semias. And Yeats was aware of this because he also speaks about a sort of synthetic fifth form of this, a medius that corresponds to the fifth or central province hmm. so this this whole initiation system was put in place that is based on these irish sources and it's still practiced today within that organization and there's just been a huge amount of research that's been done and people went and looked at the eighth material and they looked at source material and they but they really asked the question okay what can we do with this how can you form a really coherent system out of that so yeah, there, there's this weird combination between Thelema and Irish stuff, but it's done in a pretty well-considered way. That's that's awesome. And so that's still based in Ireland. Where whereabouts? Still, still in operation in Ireland. It's its primary activity is currently in Northern Ireland, but uh, there are our members across the island. Um. So anyway, I did all kinds of mad work with them. Sort of edited a journal for them for a few years and. Uh, we had a permanent temple space in Belfast for several years, 2013. Damn, I, no, I left too soon. 2015 to 2020, I believe. There was about five years there where there was a space, I think. Yeah, and that's awesome. There were art exhibitions and public ritual and workshops and a library and all this kind of thing. It was uh, quite dynamic Beautiful. at the time. Amazing, I yeah. Think, 
but at some point I was less and less involved and there's quite a bit of that that in some way I contributed to or even carried um so although they continue that they have a more quieter inward looking focus at the moment um but they're still there and they're still doing things mm. but but for me working in these large groups it didn't 100% work and also i like the magic and mm. ceremonial magic not just the irish stuff i like the irish stuff i do the irish stuff but i'm you know i'm not a one trick pony i like all the weirdness <laughs> all the weirdness how, how, how before we get into more of that weirdness uh do you know uh, an, a more accurate version of perhaps how things are right now in the in six counties um because i know that the media in canada is not portraying it accurately most likely um, the dup's falling apart which is wonderful uh that's the democratic unionist party which are very hardcore pretty bigoted protestants and i'm not saying that because they're protestants but because because they're cream buns it's because of (laughs) they believe that dinosaurs uh existed four thousand years ago that the bible says that the the universe is that old so like they fought when there was an interpretive center being built for the giants causeway which are these sort of what are they granite limestone stone uh, hexagonal columns it's a very unique yeah uh, beautiful spot i got i had a wave go straight over my head when i stood on the edge of it for a photo and the photo was taken with the wave above my head and a second later it crashed down over me mm. and then so, my sister accidentally natural. deleted it <laughs> yeah. so it's a natural wonder they were building this interpretive center and they wanted like labels to say that, you know, this is only 4,000 years ago because the Bible says it. So, oh my and God, it's that level of crazy, you know, in Northern Ireland, gay marriage was blocked for years. Abortion was illegal until it was forced upon Northern Ireland uh, for human rights reasons. Things like this, where you're just like, and they, this was completely the regressive policies of the DUP and um but it, it's a complicated question Northern Ireland's still there and there's a lot of figuring out at the moment in the light of Brexit in the light of um yeah the question of Irish reunification it's it's a big and complicated question yeah well okay back to the weirdness because that's probably the only way we can have any real impact on the situation anyway, right? Well, this is interesting you mentioned this because this group that was working, that sort of was the predecessor to the Irish Order of Salima, this OTOF, was doing active magical work sort of from 1993 onwards, focusing on this Northern Irish situation. And uh, of course, in in... The Irish Order of Salima, the uh, Good Friday is agreement is referred to as the New Eat Agreement because it was signed on the first day of the writing of the Book of the Law uh, mm. in 1998. And people were meeting together and doing active magical work uh, to resolve this Northern Irish situation 
within Northern Ireland, not just within this organization, but across a great number of people for number, number of years. You know, it's funny, 98 was the year I wrote and gave to our order uh, the Ritual for Peace in Ulster based on our Ritual for Peace in Jerusalem, which I had seen performed in LA the year before. Um, and so we in 98 started across our order performing this ritual for peace in Ulster, which I've got on Amazon now as a ritual for peace in Ireland so that people know what I'm talking about. Because not everyone knows what I think it was actually called Ulu, U-L-A-D-H. And so was, a lot of people didn't know what I was talking about. Like, what's Ulu? Well, it's very specific, you know, and it's invoking the, the old Irish ideology by saying it that way and stuff. But yeah, no, Um so it's funny, a lot of people were doing work for that, for that piece, especially I was with a, a fratter from Ireland in L.A. Uh, and we stepped out of Greatly Honored Sora R.D.'s apartment uh, one morning in 1998. And he looked down on the floor of the apartment building and saw a headline about OMA. And we were all there, uh, me and a bunch of adepts and then me and some other outer order members because we were in I was in practice at the time. And yeah, and he just like had a, a fainting spell, right? You know, because boom, right there it is, the the bomb, and uh, set a lot of stuff in motion. Oh, certainly monumental, and like Ireland has always had a little bit of a magical scene, but particularly through Thalima, which has the tendency towards a social activism sort of feel to it. Uh, some work was done, but otherwise in Ireland, most of the activity was sort of Wicca, a little bit of Druidry, and weirdly Martinism. Martinism was like a whole thing here. Really? You rarely heard about it. Yeah. Um, oh. So at the time, because originally I was interested in all the weird ceremonial magic, just normal ceremonial magic without a particular flavor on it, and the Golden Dawn kind of goes in that direction in that it's a syncretic tradition which means yeah. it covers sort of a broad span of ceremonial magic plus this whole grimoire revival wasn't a thing at the time like there wasn't nearly as much published or wasn't such an awareness of pre-modern magic i mean i owned a copy of donald tyson's agrippa and things like this but it, it didn't have the same level of penetration that it has now uh, so lodge-based, sorry, the lodge-based systems were really what was available, and in Ireland that was Tolima. Yeah, what do you think this revival of the grimoire tradition uh, brings us? Uh, brings the and brought the existing structures and pursuit of magic. What what is that? What it's what's its role been, and what do you think its role best can be in the future, in the magical community? Okay. So. I see two sides to it, one very negative and one very positive. I'm going to start with the very negative, uh, oh. not to dwell on it, but so that I can move on from it. So the very negative is that I find a lot of the Grim War revival, you know, anally retentive and a little bit elitist, that if you don't do it exactly as it's prescribed or make any changes or experiment, then, uh, you know, you, you are not doing it right. And this idea that there's a right way and a wrong way. And uh, so, so there is sort of an exclusivity to it. And it's very difficult to penetrate because 
there's a lot of gatekeeping that goes on and it's like even if you're a new person coming into that and you've maybe read the wrong source or whatever else and say the wrong thing and everybody jumps upon you and uh, it, it becomes a rather unpleasant and unhealthy community in some places not only yeah. not only but like one will meet that along the way and i think it probably puts a lot of people off do you think that's partly because purist or dogmatic approaches rule following aren't usually ever as as accurate in following their own rules as they claim and so that that sort of lack of consistency uh rubs people the wrong way well, it's a kind of cognitive dissonance mixed with a purity spiral. Like most people that consider themselves authorities on the ultimate right way to do things, experiment. They just pontificate on the right way to do things while experimenting. Right, exactly. Yeah, so, so that doesn't do us many favors for inspiring new people to undertake the a massive amount of work required to find even a basic foothold in these these practices yeah. and then the other side of it is uh, okay understanding what that tradition is what it brings and then how do you go forward with that um jake stratton kent speaks about innovative traditionalism so that yeah. you're well researched that you know where you've come from and then you still ask, how can I use this? What's next? How does this fit the world that I live in now? So that you're not just cosplaying a medieval magician. So what does that look like? And like, uh, I, I mean, there's some classic examples of, of, of that, that rigidity. Uh, one I've mentioned recently after reading Imperial Arts by John King, he, he really takes a huge, he makes massive attacks on the GD tradition, calling it a result of the new age, which is, you know, logically non sequitur, um, but also saying that any form of visualization is an utter waste of time and just pure nonsense. Well, there's an interesting observation that was made by actually another very influential magician that I crossed paths with in Ireland was a man by the name of John Herbert Brennan, or Herbie Brennan. He wrote a series of books, including Magic for Beginners, Magical Use of Thought Forms, and he trained with the Servants of the Light. And oh. one, of the, one of the things that he draws as, as a conclusion, he wrote, also wrote a book called Astral Doorways, and he points out that, okay, when we speak about astral, where did this word astral came from and mm -hmm. at some point actually the word imagination was being used interchangeably with astral astral is a fairly new word that yeah. sort of externalizes what yeah, is visual magic like when you scry it's visual magic when you see spirits before you it is magic um and the Golden Dawn is given a lot of flack because there's a fundamental misunderstanding that the Golden Dawn has a psychological model, which is fundamentally untrue. It, from a very limited perspective, has a spirit model insofar as it has a 
lord of the universe. It has a concept of deity. So it is a spirit model. Everything that is moderated through a golden dawn temple is uh, the light of divinity, essentially. It is also an energy model. The, this whole sphere of sensation, the projection of God forms, things of this nature are an energy model. And people call the Golden Dawn a psych, psychological model because of people like Israel Regardi said, oh, well, everyone should get therapy. But regarding life advice, really, not magical advice. Well, it's good life advice. But then Regardi was a Reiki and therapy. So therapist. So he was dealing with the conception of energy or of like organ. <laughs> like it was weird occult psychology that he was speaking about. He was talking about an energy model rather than a psychological model. Yeah. And, and, you know, one thing I, I have recently uh, come to appreciate again about Rigardi is as we've uh, been focused on this sort of uh, approach these days that, that people would call probably anti-psychological mo uh, models, it's made me think about what, well, what is the value of the psychology within it anyway? And then I made me realize, well, that's something, what would, if you were to ask, what's the value of, if, if you only had a spirit model and no psychological models at all, the question of what would be the psychological value of that is very interesting. Like what's the psychological result of doing these ceremonies, these rituals, these initiations, all of this. And, and the great thing is we have the answer. Rigardi did actually look at all of that stuff. And, and the Reikian model, I think is the best one to use, even, even surpassing the Jungian when it with regards to magical practice. I know, uh, I know when I was learning Gestalt therapy uh, as a new adept like 20 years ago, we were using that in the inner order for for many things uh, and basing many ideas off these Reikian ideas, uh, especially like his insights on how energy works. Um, and so it's great that Rigardi has provided us this psychological understanding of what magic is. But yeah, the idea that that's all it was and to reduce it to that, I think I think there was this a false oppositional framework set up by articles written by some magicians in the last while by setting up that dichotomy and I think it's a false dichotomy because I think that both spirit models and psychological models for as as they have been framed by people that I think should never frame them that way um it it both of by by that dichotomy negates the bigger picture that magicians have always strove to understand which is what's the difference between the two? What's the difference between matter and mind? Magicians have always said, we're just gonna go beyond that and interact with that place at which they meet or intersect because we don't have the answers. Physics doesn't have the answers, not, no one has the answers. And by setting up that dichotomy, we divorced ourselves from a holistic approach and started focusing on, on, on artificial categorizations of our experience. Well, this is it, this dichotomy, like if you speak about uh, someone like Young, he was an internalized mystic, so he will admit there were archetypes and what we would consider spiritual beings, but he also said, oh, but they're all inside. And there was a little bit of woo-woo attached to it, a little bit of strangeness, 
but like it was only people like Reich and uh, Azagioli, uh, the whole transpersonal psychology and the things that acknowledge that actually it's in us, it's outside of us, it's interconnected, it's everything. But even when you speak about the golden dawn as, okay, you can say it has its limitations, but you could also say it has its specializations. So the golden dawn tradition does what it does really well. But golden dawn magicians, it doesn't mean that's the only thing that they're doing. It doesn't mean that they're not experimenting, that they're not doing other kinds of magic, that they're... Yeah. Yeah, not playing around. That's weird. It's very weird how people have that locked in their minds. So this idea, if you've gone through a Golden Dawn system or even a Fleming system, that this is the sum total of everything that you've ever done or tried or had as a possibility, there's something wrong with that. Like, it's, it's, it's completely illogical. Of course, people are going to experiment. So when I was in this telemic order, I, I scaled back my involvement at some point because I got a bit bored and a little bit burnt out because I was doing lots of different projects and just stepped back a bit. And I was good friends with a person who, at the time I'd been moving through telemic orders, had been traveling to England to do initiations in the Golden Dawn. And a temple started in Ireland that was initially um part of nick farrell's group but then broke away and did its own thing uh the ancient and honorable order of the golden dawn and yeah they were quite i suppose historically conscious and sort of went back to source material and documents and things like this and did it quite well so at some point I joined that because that, I was like that was based in Dublin. That was based in Dublin. And that ran for about 10 years, that whole thing. And it ran very well, had a very substantial membership. Um now in the end, a couple of years ago, it chose to close its doors because well, the adepts were carrying quite a lot, but also because it had sort of run its course in a lot of ways. And it had reached a point where they could either let it go to the point where it started to diminish or they could end on a high note. Mm. And they, they chose to end on a high note and go, look, feel this has gone as far as it can go. So we're going to dissolve. And if people want to pick up that work, then they can pick up that work. And that's not a problem, but it just, won't be under this umbrella because this is the thing that was created and um yeah i i, I think it was actually quite a positive thing so there, there are a couple of there are a number of golden dawn initiates still on the island um several adepts as well and several people including myself have become i suppose affiliated with other orders and slowly begin to build up work again here so it's coming back in a new form with new people in Ireland. Not only with new people, also with people who have gone through a Golden Dawn order and have sort of experienced that and 
Yeah. Yeah. How, how many magicians would you say in the 10 years of the Dublin temple uh, went through the, the system there to some extent and were trained? To, I, I would find that very hard to quantify. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that you've seen in every Golden Dawn order there's huge congestion in the lower grades. Um, and, uh, congestion in the lower grades. No, we had so a people, congestion in the higher grades in our order. We had a congestion around Philosophist Portal. Okay. But and that I was because of stringent requirements for 5-6. But if you consider, like, there will be people that will do the neophyte and you might never see them again. Oh, sure. Yeah. People so vanish in, in every sense, grade. They're, they're technically members, but they don't necessarily progress. Yeah. I'm, I mean, when I think about... Um, I'm just th like throwing my mind back a bit to, to our temple and to think about the people. I'd say most of our... If our people dropped out, it was usually more in theoricus than neophyte i mean there was usually there's probably an attrition in neophyte of like one out of 10 people left without going to zelator then maybe another one out of 10 or five left in zelator and then theoricus we would lose maybe two out of 10 three out of 10 four out of 10 and then once you were in practicus you were pre it was pretty obvious you were serious and and then you'd get through the other grades that was how it was at our temple over you know 10 years well, my point is my point was that uh, it's very hard to quantify how many people passed through i certainly didn't keep roles or numbers but you know there was a very very strong core of people that you could have you know, an equinox ritual where you could barely circumambulate without making a mm. full circle around the room. Um, <laughs> it's just continuous Alboros. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, it was successful insofar as uh, it successfully made a number of adepts. And when I look at those adepts, uh, what they were able to convey, what they understood, what they practiced, also what they went on to practice. So, for example, one adept that went through that system became, you know, quite a proficient astrologer specializing in classical astrology. Awesome. Um, so when, when you see things like that coming out of it, I think that is more the point than numbers. I mean, numbers is... Uh, oh, for sure. Silly game to make, but if you're consistently making uh, adepts that also then don't drop out when they get their acolytes and really keep with the work and keep supporting it, then yeah, I, I think it did its work. Yeah, I've been uh, the last few months drawing from uh, Frater Yekidas in Inukian magic and practice, and that's an excellent, excellent contribution to Inukian magic, that book. Very, very much so. Um, Yakida is a very, I suppose, consequent person in his thinking. Um, he doesn't speculate a lot, and when he does, he very clearly identifies when it is speculation. And it allows you to um, live with the inherited tradition 
take into account what you're also inheriting from uh, the person, but being able to really differentiate, because this can also be a problem in magic that uh, you have almost these cults of personality that, you know, a person teaches their opinion on what something is, like say the Golden Dawn tradition. And, yeah. you know, you can throw this out and this out and this out, and you don't need to know this. And after a while, you're not practicing a Golden Dawn tradition, you're practicing somebody's interpretation or version of the Golden Dawn tradition. So this is something that was very good about the Golden Dawn in Ireland, that it um, really said, this is a historical inheritance, this is innovative, this is something that we do because it works administratively, but you could see what is what, and you could be very consequent in your own thinking as a result. No. Yeah, I also like how Yekida is Enochian practice. Um, it doesn't, he doesn't worry too much whether he's taking a Enochian approach or a de-purist approach. He just says, this is some stuff I've done. This is how I think this should be done. He's, and he is clear when he delineates uh, alternative methods or, or shows a traditional idea versus his current idea or what someone else has done, what people say you should do and what he did. And that's very important, I think, for occultists, especially in our practice to, to represent so that we don't uh, yeah, become gatekeepers of our own personality cult. You know, this is where I learned this. This is where I learned that. Uh, this is what I think. What do you think? Look at the sources I'm drawing from. Um, and then, you know, you can augment that with uh, personal experience and anecdotes and diary entries, I guess. Well, well, yeah, yeah, very much so. And this is something that struck me that people have like have changed how it is that they prove that they know stuff. Now it's almost like ideas have to be disembodied or to come from them to have value. But I was listening recently to an interview with Eric Perdue uh, with Alexander Esch on the Glitchbottle. Excellent and interview. So he, he excited about the new about, translation of Agrippa. Yeah, he's speaking about this translation of Agrippa and he really says, you know, 90% of it is just taken from other places because, you know, in an internet age, it's not that impressive. But at the time of Agrippa, to be able to, quote all of these ideas and have an awareness of all these ideas was showing how much you know yeah whereas now the pendulum has gone in the other direction that it's like well this is the thing this is how you do the thing no references no anything i mean magicians are terrible at references and agrippa wasn't great at it but it had a cultural context in which he was doing it as he was showing the breadth of what it was he knew by actually drawing on other sources and referencing other sources. Whereas now the danger is magic can exist in this. Well, this is so because I'm an authority on this. And, and, and we found this like in sort of 80s and 90s Llewellyn style books that had bibliographies that were as long as what you'd find on an article. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think that's a good thing. I think magicians should pay a bit more attention about how to uh, annotate scholarship as well as like basic things like how, how endnotes and footnotes should properly be used. Like if, if you've got someone skipping to the back of your book every few 
sentences or pages for the endnote and all the endnote is is a page number i mean use use parenthetical citation man come on don't don't make if you the point of the notation is to make the reading experience better if you've got someone flipping to the back and you're not contributing any new additional insights footnotes are or note notation is great for you know you'll say this person this comes from this thing but then you fill in a bit more information if you don't fill in a bit more information it's like oh this is a debate with these scholars and then you just have a reference of of two books highlight just spend a couple sentences now that someone's bothered to go to the end note take a couple sentences and quickly synopsize what that disagreement is. Don't expect them to go buy those two books, read them both, figure out what the disagreement is that you're, you're contributing to. And, you know, just, just state it clearly. And, and I, yeah, I wish a cultist would learn how to use footnotes and endnotes better. Some do it very well um, properly, but you, you can learn a lot from reading academic research, even if it's, even if you don't like Certainly. it, if it's boring. And, and you do have an increase in occult students that are doing some sort of university endorsed study of their weirdness when they write their thesis on Rudolf Steiner or on Solomonic magic or on the history of the Golden Dawn. I mean, people can write a thesis on anything these days. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm reading a new PhD dissertation on, on Yeats right now in the Golden Dawn. And it's by this woman and it's sort of interesting so far but she spends a lot of time highlighting uh his his lack of female characters in his stories and i and P, this is such a trend of course in academia right now is to highlight how people 100 years didn't live up to our, our moral standards or social standards of enlightenment today and it seems to me like such a pointless waste of time it's like yeah like obviously in 1890 people didn't think the same way like women didn't have voting rights some places they were still property so you know highlighting that 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 a a writer didn't include many you know uh female protagonists or main characters isn't really that interesting like we we get what was going on 130 years ago it wasn't the same time period do we really need a thesis to to point that out yeah 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 so Anyway, yeah, academia has gone in, gone in a weird direction, like we were talking about off air. <laughs> How I mentioned, like that, that a cons- it's actually a weird, real concern now that if I were to finish a PhD, it could actually diminish my credibility in some weird way. It's fucking weird, but you seem to get that idea. Well, the, the other thing is, like, there is a cult of cleverness that belongs to occultism that by well, there, there, there are two sides to that. One is genuine cleverness for people of good ideas, but you also have this kind of intellectual dominance game that goes on where, okay, who can be the most sort of authoritative on this? And very often it's just a sort of gruff, dismissive, uh, and it's the same as the gatekeeping I spoke about in this revival of the Grimoire tradition. Um, yeah. I know. Are you spending maybe a little too much time on Facebook? Because I know you're very active there under under a different name. And of course, and uh, I love your contributions. I love a lot of people's contributions, but I try not to participate much because it does seem to create a certain culture. Is that maybe where some of your reaction is coming from? Is the Facebook culture of 
all of us to an extent i mean in general i think a good magician should get rid of their social media but in that's very hard to do in an age where a lot of jobs require you know this very informal networking yeah uh, so, so i'm required to have certain social media for promotion to certain things yeah um but yeah no there is an element of that but this whole question of are you clever and this is the thing that um is truly valued okay you're clever and intelligent you can retain the information regurgitate it so you're a good magician but like what about your moral qualities what about turning up early to set up what about exactly uh, your your social sort of um competence your your social interactions how you seriously you really take fraternity for example that actually usually initiates are, are pretty one-sided and the thing that is unfortunately exceedingly valued is sort of this cold cleverness without any of the moral the morality that goes with it so yeah, that was definitely I, some of the main people that didn't get through our old temple and the grade system was people who were more interested in 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 being better than their classmates uh or were, were more interested in, in constantly finding new information or trying to get a full understanding of a particular exercise or lesson they were taught in class before they practice it because they want to know it as well if not better than the teacher and as a result they tended to just not do the work like you said they they might not show up and really participate they often had social problems um and it usually came down to yeah this kind of cleverness over over labor like well cleverness over labor cleverness over social skills cleverness over emotional intelligence but we know from ethion from the tree of life that actually you know cleverness is only one little corner you know you have compassionate relation you have power you have devotion you have i suppose strength or steadfastness um like there, there are so many things that the ideal initiate should cultivate but very often they they cultivate only the the intellectual aspect of um yeah what is supposed to be a developmental path so you should come out of the other end as a better person i think mm -hmm. yeah of course of course well if you can make it past the air grade and air work and theorcus into water um that's usually where i noticed people would like yeah i and i noticed for myself that that's where a huge hit came because it was like oh my cleverness and my intellectual studies is really not that important because all of a sudden now i'm struggling with this whole other side of myself that is just the emotional and the subconscious and and the the faithful and the passionate and really you have to wrestle with that through practicus and philosophers right in these fiery watery fire fiery water grade and watery fire grade and the 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 white and the red work that goes on there uh in my understanding so yeah after the golden dawn work here closed down i then did some more sort of celticy irish things or very rooted in source tradition and work with a small group of people 
also on this whole, I, I suppose, question of Celtic cosmology. What does a Celtic Irish tradition really look like? And then yeah, after I've a been... while, I came... sorry, continue. And then after a while, I came back to the to Golden Dawn as a question because I really like I like all the weirdness, and I can have all the weirdness. Amen. Um, have you, uh, we, uh, we've been doing some work with uh, Midir. Have you done much uh, work with the Irish King of the Fairies? A little bit. Um, like in the group that I worked with, we used the three poetic grades from the Colloquy of Two Sages um, as a model. So in the old Bardic schools, you had uh, essentially three fundamental grades. The early poets, the, the Philly, got a bronze branch and they were involved in just learning, rote learning. It was the stories and the oem and things like this. And not just learning, also practicing. Then it was the, um, let me see, Philly, uh, Anrut. And the Anrut was, uh, brought in a visionary aspect to that and began exploring also this more visionary side of uh, poetic and mystical work. And then of course there was mastership at the end of that process. So I've been working on developing a little bit of a curriculum for that and how that integrates with cosmology and yeah, I mean, I like the weird Irish stuff. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Um... Hey, uh, for for some of my listeners, I know will will be interested in uh, in 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 pronunciation. I've 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 addressed this here and there, um, but one of the things that that's interesting to people is how Irish words are pronounced. Like a lot of people, of course, will probably be surprised that you said "tuha de Donan and not "tuatha." Of course, Ireland Irish phonology is quite different, and it's muddled by the fact that there's some distinct dialects. So midir, for example, is spelled M-I-D-I-R, but in modern Irish, it would be spelled with an H next to the D to change, to represent the, the dot over the D or the, the shavu, which is a diacritic that softens the consonant. So adding an H there, um, you know, replaces that. And you'll hear that whole word pronounced differently. So it, my Irish teacher Dunny, from Donegal, he would he would often because of the northern dialect and the the it's harder he would say midzir midzir and you could probably in the south find places where they just skip the the hard consonant altogether and say mir mm -hmm. yeah but I i'm mean, sure my my people would be curious to hear about some of your uh thoughts on pronunciation there like as an example Okay, there, there, there are a couple of different things here. First is in the evolution of languages, the older Irish uh, that we still have written forms of in the annals and things like this, it was spelled much closer to how it's spoken. And mm -hmm. while we think about uh, Scotland, Scotland and the Isle of Man as speaking different languages, once upon a time there was they all spoke the same language. They all spoke what we might call Middle Irish now. And on the Isle of Man, it's interesting because when they reformed their language, 
it's spelt phonetically, so you can read it as it sounds. Really? Manx is spelt phonetically? I didn't know that. Manx is spelled phonetically. Uh, and some of the spellings are really weird because it uses the Latin alphabet. So you'll have your V's and your, like, like things you would never have oh, in wow. Irish. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, Manx is the least understood of, or at least well-known of the three Gaelic languages, of course, um, being just that tiny little island between Scotland and Ireland. Where, where Gimli the dwarf comes from. <laughs> and then you have Scots Gaelic or Gaelic, um, which is a Middle Irish derivative. And the Irish that's spoken in Ireland is so different and the spellings are so difficult because it became a cultivated language or was what was referred to as scholars Irish where basically they cultivated in the same way that you have in Germany uh, high German or Hochdeutsch Hochdeutsch yeah uh, that they tried to do an Irish version of this essentially and it changed the language fundamentally so rather than uh, Irish sort of uh, changing fundamentally in Scotland or on man, actually it changed very fundamentally in Ireland. And that's where all of these really weird spelling things came in. Yeah. Yeah. The, we had all of these the really weird pronunciations. So the rule with Irish is you try to read it and you're wrong. <laughs> Whatever you said, it's probably wrong. Whatever you think it looks like, it's probably wrong. Yes, yes, that, that was something that baffled me when I, <laughs> as a seven-year-old, trying to learn it. <laughs> but the other question is, if you're using it in an occult context, is it important that it's right in a phonetic, perfectly pronounced sense, or is it important that it's useful and that it works? And hence, you know, the Irish saying, uh, broken broken irish is better than correct english i mean which rhymes if you say it in irish is farlam uh gaelic vrishta gone uh berla clishta clever english yeah yeah better than yeah barely, clever english that's right yeah yeah people would say that to me all the time especially I, I in the broken past. irish clever english yeah yeah they would just try and keep me talking they'd just be like keep just say it just say how you you know think you should say it and it was great it was a, that was a really cool that's a great environment to learn a language in so it's very wise that that that's become popular to the irish speaking culture to say hey we don't if you fuck up with the spelling or the grammar doesn't matter just speak it as much as you can of course my friends in belfast were also that gang of guys who would go around to the road signs in ireland and and cover up the words with uh decals that said guelga Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, because they're, they're doing that in protest of the signs that are only in English, not representing the languages of both populations, of course, um, yeah. for those who don't understand what's, why they would do that. Yes, covering up the only English-only signs with, with decals that say Irish or Guelga. Um, yeah, it was quite a funny thing because we'd be driving along the countryside to a, to a cottage for the weekend and they'd just pull over, get out, run up to some signs and cover them with these stickers. <laughs> Now, one of the other major considerations of <laughs> the Irish language and uh, com comes from basically colonialism. Because, like, 
people say, okay, it's not pronounced how it's spelled. And this is fundamentally untrue because there's an Anglo-centric assumption there that everything is pronounced in the way that it is in English. In the same way that in German, a W is a V sound. Yeah. So, so if you spell something for a German and say V, they'll still write a W because that is how it's, it's pronounced because they don't have this Anglo-centric colonial view. But because Irish was suppressed and it was illegal to speak it under a colonial, under uh, penal law and the language hung on for a long while, but it, it diminished in the 19th century so significantly that, yeah, I'm not sure that it gets its due recognition as a language in its own right and a cultural perspective in its own right, rather than as a, an alternative to predominant colonial culture that is existent in Ireland and in, yeah, a lot of English speaking countries. Irish isn't wrong, colonialism is. I, I do love I did love the fact that the Irish government when the EU was failing to recognize the language really, which is a language that people don't realize like cops like your guards the police are required to be able to communicate in it. Are they actually good at it? Sort of like Canadians with French, maybe not me, but they're, you know, if you speak, if you go to a government politician or anyone like that or the news that you, you should be allowed to, in that government office for example be able to speak in irish and they have to you know deal with you that way um oh what was the thought and uh ah oh, damn it slipped away from me sorry brother yeah I, I mean i lost the conclusion by the time i got there uh, yeah, I suppose this whole question of Irish, you go, oh, well, it's a minority language is dying out, but it's not. It's not. Oh, that's it. The Ireland, Ireland removed today. all the English. Ireland removed the English from the signs in the tourist part of Western Ireland to get back at the EU for their not recognizing the language really in practice. So Ireland removed the English <laughs> translations on the Irish signs in Western Ireland as a fuck you to the world it's like you don't believe this is our real language fine we'll only use it in the crucial areas where you are looking for directions how do you like them apples <laughs> but but if you look at the revival of language in cornwall which was completely dead and yeah. is now a spoken language again in wales where it was also teetering on the edge you know people could do more for the irish language in terms of its progression but interestingly irish is growing on an international basis because of things like duolingo so and so you have people often from the diaspora but not only like i've met a number of asians that just decide i'm going to learn irish yep <laughs> japanese um, especially <laughs> there's there's a wonderful film actually called uh it's misha i think something Lin, Dom Lin or something like this uh, about this Chinese man that learns Irish because he wants to visit Ireland and he comes here and he only speaks Irish, he doesn't speak English. And they, <laughs> Sorry. And they have to explain the cultural context of why 
Irish isn't spoken in Ireland. It, it's a wonderful short film. Oh my god! It is. It's... Sorry, sorry. Uh, I, I should really send you a link to that. It he is learned the most Irish, wonderful thing not English. <laughs> I'm just but, imagining him walking around Dublin like go Maleshkill, go Maleshkill. Yeah, yeah. And going into a bar and the, the barman going, "Sorry, I don't speak Chinese." And it's like, well, but you know, I'm speaking Irish. Boalam <laughs> Ishkabaha. It's like, no Chinese here. Yeah. Jesus. I did get in trouble the first time with the cops in Ireland when they, they asked me some questions and I replied, Gomaleshkil, Nil Berla Agam. They didn't yeah, think it was I, funny as I as I, I did. I don't think anybody would believe that now. Um, yeah, the, the but, chances of me speaking Irish and not English, which is what I said, is basically impossible. Except in the case of this Chinese fellow, <laughs> he literally would have been like Gomeleshkil, Nil Barla Agam. I don't speak any English, <laughs> just Irish and Chinese. <laughs> yep. Okay, I'm gonna calm down. That's just awesome. Yeah, send no, me the link to that that movie. I'll post it. A wonderful image. So you have this growth in the Irish language in people around the world that aren't part of the diaspora. Of course, in the United States, you have sort of cultural centers and Irish centers in most of the major cities, even in some of the towns. Um, and of course, there is a wish for cultural preservation there because in the Americas, in North America, also Canada, and in the United States, you have, I suppose, a slightly twee image of Ireland, Ireland as it was 40 or 50 or 60 years ago. But in a way that also means that cultural traditions are preserved and passed on. And a lot of effort goes into that. Like you can attend Shanos classes in, you know, major US cities now. That's, um, yeah, that's amazing. Um, or uh, I, I've been, I've been always, uh, trying to find a Shano's Dausa whenever I've been living somewhere since Ireland. And, and it is increasing and, and hopefully more so like the Shano and the Shano's, the old singing is just, uh, it's so awesome to see that, that getting more popular. And like, and then you come to, yeah, who's learning it? It's young people. Uh, yeah. There's a huge growth in Irish language schools in Ireland because they're well-run schools. So you have an entire generation of young people being sent to these schools because they're good schools, but they're also schools that work exclusively through the Irish language. Yeah. yeah. And finally, you have massive urban growth in Ireland. So, for example, in Belfast, there is an estimated Irish-speaking population of 40,000. That's crazy. I mean, if you consider that there's half a million or so in Belfast. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty damn good. Yeah, I don't think that many people were speaking when I was there 13 years ago. Well, I think it depends where you are and in what company. Well, I lived at Broadway in the Falls next to the Culture Land. Yeah, yeah. I live further up in Andy Town. And, but like, yeah. as soon as you meet, because it's an act of resistance, the Irish language also. So people, particularly in West Belfast, will learn Irish on principle. Yeah. And so if you meet a H-Blocks prisoner or uh, you go to the PD for a pint, which is a Republican bar that 
lots of Republican individuals who I won't call Melfries, <laughs> <Harry laughs> but <coughs> after oh. um, after <laughs> <All right. laughs> <laughs> yeah. so places like that, you would just constantly hear Irish being spoken. You know, you could go across the road to the chippy and speak in Irish. If you go down as far as the shore road, the shore road is pretty much all Irish speaking in Andytown. Like shops, anywhere you go, it's Irish speaking. Yeah, that's yeah, it's it's great. Um, I, yeah. I find it it's amazing, and also among young people, there is um, a, a wonderful Irish rap group called uh, Kneecap, I believe. <laughs> But oh it's Irish God. language rapping about drugs and sex and it's it's you know it's 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 yeah. not this old Irish oh, this is a dead language uh, Tommy Golgody and Shopper no yeah. people talking about drugs and getting the shift and uh, you know who they hooked up with last night and that they're dying of a hangover and you know proper usable Irish yeah yeah. Uh, there was an Irish rapper on the falls in 2008 and 2009 when I was there. And uh, I think he was one of the first, you know, he was putting stuff up on YouTube and it was quite very new and all the rage. And it's cool that there's now an Irish hip hop scene and a band called Kneecap. <laughs> I have to check that out. That's awesome. <laughs> I used to watch, of course, Ross Naroon all the time when I was young. Um, the Irish uh, language soap opera that you can, it's so much fun. My God, damn. Yeah, it's great that 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 the that the language is still expanding, and it is a such a a resistance movement as well. Is is there um, are there any places in Ireland uh, that like the of as far as the landscape and and the natural environment that for you were your favorite magical spots to uh, connect with? Because everyone knows the classic ones, but they might not know some of the ones that locals such as yourself and veterans in the magical scene would perhaps suggest. Well, I grew up in County Kildare, sort of shortly outside of Kilcullen, which has Dunalen, and you have sort of this whole landscape of, on one hand, uh, sort of Fionn and the Fianna, or Finn and the Fianna, depending on where you're from. Uh, in Northern Ireland, they still call him Finn, which is an older form, and in the South, Fionn. And on the other hand, you have Bridget, who is sort of rebel, nun, goddess, abortionist. Uh, <laughs> like she, she did all kinds of things uh, that were full on, like unquestionable magic. So coming from there, like you would go to the bridge as well and you would see things like rosaries and rags on the tree and offerings left at the well and I, I like that whole end of things, this um, this sort of pagan Catholicism that exists here. Yeah. Like when mu musicians would drag me to a shrine in the middle of a rainstorm at midnight on Inishmore and tell me to do my rosary and, and, and invoke the goddess, the Virgin Mary, Queen of the Fairies, uh, so that her son Jesus Christ would protect us from the evil spirits, you know that that in just a couple sentences he's blended together a bunch of things that I've never heard blended together before, um, and for him it's cultural. This is just this is how life is. 
you know. Catholicism in Ireland is this weird mix of mythology, sort of Pishoga, which are Irish folk customs that have magical intentions, folklore, and sort of this very, very pagan Catholicism that you don't find in all Catholic countries. Lord, no. Lord, no. No, it's very specific. Only in the Pope's favorite country, Ireland. But what I'm learning as I go on, because there's this whole movement, oh, you know, we're pagans, we love the art. And you have people driving then, you know, from one end of the country to the other to go to a sacred site for to hold the festival or to commune with nature. And I'm just at the point in my life where I'm like, wherever you are, that's the place, you know. Everywhere has a Gina Loci. Yes. Yeah. Everywhere has the fairies. You don't have to. And this is it. People used to live much more locally and much more sustainably and everything else. Like, this is, you know, I, I tried the whole pagan thing at one point, but I was mainly into magic and pagans didn't seem very pagan to me because they lived in suburbs in Dublin and, uh, you know, lived less than sustainable houses lives and uh you know had two cars and didn't use public transport and you're like well what's particularly pagan about you now like where's yeah. your earth love i don't see it, uh-huh. it you, you just have like weird occult traditions you're an occultist you're not really like into the country like this is pagan is yeah, those of know, the country you know the bumpkins the paganos of the earth you're not really of the earth if you're just living a normal life look look at things like wicca and like the the materialistic culture in modern sort of witch culture where it's like okay big bag full of strip mine crystals and all this kind of thing and i'm not saying that early on it didn't have some of those qualities but like paganism very much sits in this predominant paradigm so like for me it's a question of just do your own thing Look, don't interface with what the popular site is or where you should really be going and just look around yourself. And if you can't find it within five kilometers of yourself, if you can't walk there and walk back, it's probably not as important as you think it is. I really like that, that this mentality you're talking about, which is of just accepting the divinity sort of, of the, the land that you happen to occupy. I mean, of course, I was raised with the ideals of biodynamic farming and all of this as well but but there is so much to that it's like you don't need to go to the cliffs of moor to discover the fairies and the irish gods there's there's fairies and gods in the land that you're in just go to the nearest place find somewhere that you can walk to that make that sacred discover its natural sacrality i like that and also repeat the experience because relationships are cultivated you don't form a relationship by going to a different place every single week and never returning there ever again. But don't you? Because That's it's all just in your head it anyway. It's all just psychology, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, psychology. the relationships. The relationships are, are, are huge, yeah. Well, I, I think that's what a lot of pagans in cities feel is that they're cut off from nature. So they're, they're trying to bring back the ethos of nature as best they can in an urban environment. That's hence the, the urban pagan, right? Um, and I do have a lot of sympathy for that. If you are stuck in a life that doesn't connect, it doesn't have much connection with nature, 
maybe all you can do is connect with nature on the astral. But yes, you could probably still also try and be a little bit more environmentally aware, but not necessarily, I think, in the way that you think you should be. I'm not sure what that means, but it's an idea. But you know what? It, it varies a wee bit. I mean, everybody carries their thing in their own way. I It's just... I personally don't connect with the predominant pagan culture. Like, I wouldn't identify as a pagan insofar as I intersect with Christianity, I intersect with magical traditions. And if you look at, like, Irish folk tradition, it's this weird blend of a little bit of everything. Human beings are complex, and they have lots of different hats. And, like, we've entered into an identity politics world, like I said, where you're only one thing you know, you're only the Golden Dawn edition or you're only belong to a Christian church or you're only a pagan. Of course, yeah. human beings are immensely complex and multifaceted and multi-interested multi and we don't have space for that anymore in a world where you're your you're, you're label and you're your cause and you're, you're ever enclosing or ever sort of... Uh, condensing social identification that there, there's no recognition that you know just because a person isn't in your tribe doesn't mean you can't learn something from them or that they might not become part they 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 can't become part of the tribe that you sort of grow into and things like this that we've gotten so into identity politics i'm a pagan i'm a magician i'm a purist solomonic arsehole whatever <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's definitely what I try and communicate with people. It's like, so yeah, just, I mean, yeah, it's just, it should go without saying, but yeah, it, it, the identity politics does seep into our magical community in a, in a very limiting way. It's, it's a little exhausting when people are, are so rigidly defined by themselves that they can't explore something new or consider, try a different way. That's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm exploring the, the, the de purist method for, which is what some people like to call it. I don't think that's a good thing to call it. I think it just should be called angelic magic as opposed to Enochian magic. And I'm exploring this, the, the D's approach, like how did D do this stuff? Cause I never did that. I was always GD style Enochian. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's very, it's very eye-opening to, to see this magic done, to see Enochian work done, all with prayers, right? Zero, no other rituals, just these prayers and conjurations, and then that's it. And then you're communicating, you know? And that's that's probably, fly, it flies in the face of what so many people think is required in magic, because you don't need an LBRP or an LIRP. You don't need a watchtower ritual. In fact, if you're doing that stuff, you're really not doing these traditional angelic magic. You're doing... Enochian or Neo-Enochian or GD, right? But um, I will say on the Enochian GD front is there is a little bit of a false dichotomy there also because no. there's only certain aspects of Enochian that's actually usable or that you can obviously do something with In the GD system? In, in like what we have as an Enochian inheritance well, we have the heptarchia, the tablets and aethers, and then 
the uh, two initiations of Gebafel in the 19 day or like what what are you thinking well, isn't that well, a what lot I'm thinking is there are certain things that weren't explicitly explained this is how you use this oh like of course the it's not. yeah table of lagot and things like this and the golden dawn looked at it and went okay these bits that we don't have enough information to do anything with let's just do something with this and see what happens yeah yeah so, like, like I, I, I learned a whole approach isn't a big bad wolf it's just one experiment with technologies that weren't super usable when they inherited them and they went okay let's do the best we can with this absolutely well the golden dawn created an okian magic this is what i this is what i think this is what i say because well, the golden dawn didn't understand how to use d's angelic system with the access to the resources they had or the time they had or took um they developed most of the material from book h i believe if if correct me if i'm wrong like most of the gd stuff comes from book h which is a compilation of of angelic d's angelic magic that we still to this day don't know who compiled it and the gd took what fragments it could that made sense with what they were developing and and formed that and gave it a new name distinct from what D called his system. And that new name was Enochian magic. Oh, I mean, certainly the name is completely contrived and modern and. By um, the GD for their unique application of certain parts of the angelic system. Yep, yeah, this is the thing like we're, we're modern people, you need adaptations or interpretations or like you need to do something with it otherwise it's just sort of oh that's interesting like that's right. that's the line of which it's it's sort of vague scholarship and not occultism yeah um we i mean gd orders of course have come a long way since 100 and something years ago um and that's good i mean a lot of gd orders do teach traditional enochian magic or angelic magic alongside their uh, their ver the GD version in our order we had developed a whole way of using the Benorum angels early in my time as an adept that I didn't know it wasn't traditional I, I but uh, but it was completely new the way we adapted it into a form of talismanic working uh, that that we engaged with heavily for years um, and and then when I looked at the actual Heptarchia Mystica I was like oh what we were doing was a complete adaptation like radical adaptation of that using some formula, uh, some basic structures that we've followed with the Shem angels as well, and then incorporating it into into advanced inner order rituals, right? But yeah, very, very different, but complete adaptation. I hope more people keep working with Neo-Enochiana in that way, and they will, because it's so popular. And years and years and years ago, I looked at chaos magic and I went, no, it's not for me. It's sort of a bit peripheral and whatever else. And in recent years, it's sort of, gone through a number of systems and now I've reached a point where I'm like you know what I just like the weird shit and <laughs> I'll play with that and see what comes out and it doesn't mean I'll lack scholarship or that I won't be aware of sources or anything like that but just that I don't have to feel tied to them or chained to them being tied to them isn't as bad as being chained to them and um, there's a very interesting Irish man that sort of I started doing lots of weird chaos magic -y stuff. And he has a, a wonderful podcast also, a man by the name of Tommy Kelly. Yeah, yeah, and very interesting. Tommy developed a 40 servants sort of uh, sort of servitor deck and 
Um, it's it's very pictorial. It reminds me of Lever Two Three One from Alistair Crowley, that they're like yeah. these spirit sigils, basically, uh, of these archetypes of what human life is like. And I I you know for a lot because chaos magicians very often are assholes in the sense that they're completely irreverent and don't take magic very seriously or don't appear to as you meet them let's say you meet them online less so in the books the books tend to be more serious but if if you interface with online communities and meet these sort of people there generally isn't enough substance where you kind of go oh yeah yeah there's something to that but the older I get, the more playful I get because, yeah. to be honest, like you can be po-faced and go, well, that's not traditional. But at some point you have to ask the question, does it work? Did I get anything out of that? Like a tradition for the sake of tradition doesn't do a whole lot. Tradition needs to also progress. You can have roots without chopping off all the limbs that reach upwards. Beautiful, yeah. Of course, I fully agree. But, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Us, it's useful to have uh, the chaos magic movement remind us of these things, I think. And I, uh, I, I did fall in love with, uh, with Phil Hine when I first started exploring him after, after my GED time. And, uh, and yeah, I haven't stopped exploring chaos magic ever since then. But definitely there's some things that that fit in with my my practices and some things that that don't the tommy kelly deck i was looking at after i was just doing this interview with frater thoth in out of brazil he had me on his uh project mayhem podcast which is which is a lot of fun and uh he was say, telling me actually about tommy kelly's deck it's so popular in brazil it's overtaking mainstream religions in a lot of places you have massive amounts of people like praying to these servitors and using this deck and treating it like they're they're a new sort of scriptural basis it's 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 i had i was i was shocked isn't that amazing i mean it's hilarious because tommy of course would have none of that he's like oh sure it's it's out there but you know anything you put on it's on you <laughs> but yeah there's a, almost like this orisha quality to them in some ways yeah yeah well that's um, that connects with their their the native traditions that are so popular in brazil and uh, apparently and so yeah tommy kelly's big uh not yeah tommy kelly's big in brazil <laughs> but you know what the reason that his work really appeals to me is he's on the art you know he reflects on himself goes oh well i was a bit of an arsehole or you know i have these hang-ups that I haven't fully worked through. So then I went to counseling and I spent some time looking at this and it's, it's just this entire picture. And what comes out of it is a kind of, what, what uh, Grant Morrison refers to as a fuck you kind of positivity. Mm. Grant Morrison basically said, you know, when the world is going to shit and <laughs> they want the world to go to shit the most, anarchistic sort of chaos magic thing you can do is have a fuck you optimism i love it i love it this is one of the things that sort of yeah makes me quite positive about tommy kelly because you know what if you listen to the podcast or you sort of have that non-competitive non oh jesus my approach is better than your approach kind of thing 
and just have a bit of crack with it, have a bit of fun with it. And life is better when you're not burdened by all of that po-faced grand high pooba up your own arsehole because you feel you need to be an authority to somebody. No, I, I do the weird stuff for me because I enjoy it and the rest, whatever. Yep. Yeah. And that, that's uh, Adventures in Woo Woo, of course, right? His podcast. Yeah. 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 No, it's apologies, apologies, of course, to all of the po faced up their own arse people out there. But yes. none of you will admit that you are this. So hopefully I haven't offended anybody since you will not own that label. <laughs> <laughs> Literally none of the people you're talking about would, would, self, would, would think you're talking about them. Yeah. So, so, so no, 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 no harm, no foul. Fuck you, optimism. I love you all, even in your grumpiness. Uh, <laughs> Shout out to anyone who does feel identified by those comments and uh has some thoughts to share let me know <laughs> oh man if, if those people exist i commend you for owning your shit yes if you can own it yeah oh man i always tell my peeps like you just got to keep doing the work like you know we all come up against blocks and we all form like a negative patterns or just or unhelpful uh egregores of 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 operation for in our lives but one thing you can be sure i've found if you keep really doing the work and and keep that you know fanning the flames be zealous and invoke often like you will get through that stuff it will like if it's a negative uh thought form or structure in your in your spirit that you're feeding it will get so big that eventually you will have to deal with it and turn that lead into gold. So it's like, even if, you know, don't worry too much about what your failings are. If you don't, if you can't identify them, just keep doing the work. Right. Oh yeah. yeah. This is it. When you, when you, you meet the lesser guardian, the threshold, uh, mm. it's his job to slap you around a bit. And afterwards, it doesn't mean you'll be perfect, but, uh, at least you'll look at it a bit and go, this is what I have to carry. This is what I have to work with. And if I can't maybe fix all of it, I can at least work around it and be conscious of it. And now a word from our sponsors. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. 
With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. Yeah. And there's some good insights in that. If you, if people go back and listen to my series is on Steiner, where he talks about simulacrum, uh, in regards to the encounters at the, with the, with the threshold dwellers and, uh, the spiritual what's asked of us spiritually to overcome in ourselves throughout that process. It's very interesting stuff. We, we definitely encounter, uh, along the way, so many different versions of ourselves that we would, we think we should be, or we think we could be. And, and usually the lessons I've found that I had to learn from those versions I wanted to be, or versions I was, is never what I expected. Right. And the, and the journey beyond that self, beyond that threshold, is always unexpected. Like the, almost a sign of its veracity uh, is the fact that the way I came out on the other end was not how I expected to. I, I think you're doing well if you've survived. <laughs> Just keep doing it and survive. <laughs> keep doing it, survive. What, what is that uh, saying? Uh, fail, fail again, fail better. Yes. Yeah. What do I think we used to say in our order, uh, only new mistakes. That was a po- popular saying that we'd say amongst adepts. Only new yeah. mistakes. You know, don't try, don't like, definitely don't try and be flawless or, or like, you know, uh, perfect. It's just, it, that's insane. Um, well, this is it. Anybody that has to carry the weight of the expectation of being perfect all the time is going to have a full on meltdown because nobody can carry that. Yeah. Yeah. But you can still improve on yourself. That, that's what the weird woo-woo work is about. That's what the occultism is about. It's not about being perfect. I mean, look at Alistair Crowley when he claims he reached adepthood and whatever, Epismus Creed or whatever. There were still bits of him that were fucking terrible. But when he was functioning in that role, he was also wonderful. And I think that's true of most adepts, you know. Like the number of adepts, whether it's uh, William Ernest Butler or Franz Barden that were like chain smoking, diabetic, or like there are they're, they're all these people that are deeply imperfect. Like, but they keep working on it. And I think that's the important thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I've got some uh, some some uh, listener questions for you, believe it or not, um, about your you because you you've published an amazingly awesome article in Light, the Light Extended, which is an anthology volume, uh, volume one and two are, are on Amazon for people who are interested. And your article under Frater D is called the MacGyver Golden Dawn Temple. So yes, that's in volume two. 
volume two. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, one, one, one of one has asked uh, who has has your book. He says uh, you mentioned. He says you mentioned getting uh, the Egyptian hieroglyphs for the pillars printed on fabric by a print on demand company. He says he'd like to know how one would go about doing that. I assume you need picture files of the hieroglyphs to do something like that. So I'm curious to see what you suggest for that process. And that's from Leigh Lokins Awen, who has the new LVX Files podcast. Okay. Can I tell you the cheeky answer to this? I'd expect nothing less, Mahara. Okay. The cheeky answer is you have a couple of options floating around the internet already scanned. Uh, there are high resolution versions of uh, Chicken Tabby's book on building a Golden Dawn temple with images from. Um, Adam Forrest in it. Not saying that you should just download it, but if you already own a copy, then you could maybe also be forgiven for taking those scans that are already out there. Or if you don't have the book, to get those scans that are already out there and then buy the book. Uh, support living authors. Uh, but but the other thing is, of course, the Israel, the Israel Regardi, um Temple diagrams are out there, um, and are scanned and very are very easily accessible, and then you just need to invert them for the black pillar. And there are, there are other Golden Dawn pillar diagrams that are uh, in private collections. For example, if one has access to those, yeah. But um, ultimately, you just find a version. Yeah. I mean, some sources even point to where in the Egyptian Book of the Dead they are. So you can find yourself a version of that and remove the, the related plates, invert them for the black pillar and size them up. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm a fairly computer techie-ish kind of person, so I don't have issues with that. But if people want to come to me and go, okay, I, I really can't wrap my head around that. Um, I'm very open to that too. Sometimes you have to go straight to MacGyver himself. Sometimes you have to go, yeah, but like with, okay, as in the, this, <laughs> this MacGyver Golden Dawn Temple. It, so I set myself a brief that it had to be cheap, that it had to be deconstructible so it would fit into a couple of suitcases. So you, if you had to travel with it, you could. That it had to use a minimum number of specialist tools. So things you might anyway have in a house, like a drill and a saw. And that you wouldn't like need to be a super adept woodworker or so, um, yeah. Like you wouldn't have to have super specialized skills does require a little bit of sewing, but um, yeah, not necessarily particularly good sewing, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So in, in this sort of MacGyver Golden Dawn Temple, I managed to pull in banner stands, banner, pillars, double cube altar, um, the scepters, staffs, wands, whatever you call them, for Hierophant, for um, Hyrus, 
no, hegemon. Um, bring in on budget two swords for a Hyrus and for the Sentinel, a um, wand or staff for the Kerax, the lamps, the sensors, everything for under 500 euro. Yeah. Anything you would need. Because the thing is with Golden Dawn, they go, oh, well, there's so much stuff. You just can't do it. It's too but hard. So you outlined how someone could build an entire, all the tools and everything they need to start their own temple for less than a grand. Oh, easily less than a grand. And, I, I well, think I came in with a budget of about 400. Then I said like, okay, leave a buffer because some of that was luck. Oh, oh, I'm thinking in Canadian dollars. So, you know, big, okay, yeah, yeah. big difference, but yes. Um, yeah. So like $500 basically, let's say is how much. Uh, you could probably make this temple uh, a full golden on temple for and then rock and roll yeah it's a great article yeah. for for people interested in light and extension a related question is from from fratter k um ask ask him how he organizes his magical to go bag the last time you two chatted i recall being super interested thanks for the question a magical go bag a magical go bag is apparently something you referenced i don't know I mean, I, I have a magical go bag in, in an Irishy sense. Um, ah, well, what is it? Yeah, I'm well, I have a set of omen. I have a set of omen there, and a silver branch with some bells on there, and basically, what 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 is it that you you might need as sort of a cosmological aid or a way to represent? How the world is i can't even remember what we spoke about last time god <laughs> a million years ago uh, yeah time is moving uh, strangely in the world these days i know yeah it's uh um i guess he's also interested in along the lines of uh if you take any tools training procedures in order to deploy and use it with little notice Well, everybody's been locked at home for such a long time that we haven't had to go anywhere and do anything. So you, you haven't done it in a while. It is yeah, interesting or... when I think, because I do have to take my tools. Like uh, it's when I'm packing up a, a bag to go go do some work, it, I don't actually, ne I, I don't have a solid system on what I need to bring and sometimes find I have left something that I wish I had brought. Um, it is It is interesting. Uh, the question of what are the key tools you'd bring with you that it would bring with me that that's a different question so yeah. for me tools are represent things that already belong to the magus so in a golden dawn tradition for example traditionally you would work through the outer order and integrate these elemental aspects to oneself and then when one becomes an adept, one would uh, create magical tools and yeah, they would sort of be an outer representation of these qualities. But mm -hmm. like, how much do people really use the, the four elemental weapons in day-to-day -day magic? They're primarily manifestations or recapitulations at a different octave of work that has been done and that continues the, the, right. the concept that one needs a whole lot of tools is 
okay, maybe you need some reference books, maybe you need a tarot deck, you know, maybe you need a piece of paper that you can draw, cast a geomantic shield, or uh, I'm, I'm not big into like field tools or putting a ton of stuff onto your back to go across fields or something like that. No, like if seriously, all you really need if you're going to go outside is make sure that you have something for the weather. You have wellies, you have rain gear, you have a bottle of water, which uh, the rest is inherent. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I mean, we, one thing that I, I often am confronted by people thinking that we use more tools more often than we do. Like um, people are surprised to find out that I 90% of the time just do my rituals with my hands. Um, and they're like, but you have a Lotus wand, you have a, a Mars sword. Why aren't you using those all the time? It's like, well, you don't really need to, you know, I, and certainly with the elemental weapons, like, is it great to hold them in my left hand while I'm tracing uh, symbols or, uh, you know, sure. But again, yeah, it's, a, it's not at all necessary because they are representations of something inside me. Like they can't do something that I can't necessarily do. At the same time, I do think it's interesting how some of the innovations that are going on, I know, especially in Zaleski's order, um, with the tools and questions that are being asked and explored. I've done a lot of exploring with using, just having my tools on the altar and then using, putting my hands on them at different stages and scrying or doing astral work. And that, that's just sort of an obvious thing to anyone who's gotten to that stage in, in that system to use them that but way, but yeah not essential there's a difference if you're at home with an altar and your stuff is there so then you might be a little bit more likely to use it but it's 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 a hammer and nail question you know mm. they're all hammers but they always need a hammer yeah well there you have it folks there's there's the questions answered thanks for asking them <laughs> i don't know if i'm very good with questions i'm very irreverent <laughs> Things like that. I'm sorry that I've slaughtered all of your sacred cows. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's, it's, you're, you sound very, very sorry. I, I'm terribly <laughs> sorry. Do shit, see if it works. If it doesn't, yeah, do it different next time. If it does, keep doing that. Yeah, amen. Amen. Um, cool. Well, um, I know it's late there. Uh, do you have a Do you have a bit more time uh, to, to to chit chat about some stuff? Is there any stuff you 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 think that people should know about what's going on in, 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 in from your point of view in the magical world going forward? Like the state of a culture. How do you see the state of a culture today and in the future? I don't know because I'm turning into a little bit of a grumpy old man. So like, I don't know. There's a whole thing called like witch talk now where people make these super micro videos of all their drip mine crystals and their hundred tarot decks. And I used to be this person. Don't, don't get me wrong. I used to own crystals and I used to own like a, a shit ton of tarot decks. And I donated them all to an esoteric library because uh, I was like, you know, how much it is do you really need? I, I think the idea that you need a ton of props for something is generally untrue unless you're working a system that requires a lot of props. But the idea that 
buying occult stuff equals being an occultist is fundamentally wrong. That we shouldn't swap consumerism uh, for practice or for, yeah, going out and finding a stake and using it as a wand or, yeah, making something or actually putting effort into it. The idea that everything can now be got off Etsy or off Amazon or off Wish and this is you know, the world we live in, we are just an expansion of consumer culture rather than a counter-cultural force for change. Like magic is supposed to be change. If we don't like the world the way it is, then why do we keep contributing to it with bad magic, like cognitively dissonant practices that are about hoarding commodities rather than activities that work towards a goal and yes you can have a little bit of both but if you put so much effort into having all the stuff and all the books and all the the trappings of what it means to be an occultist it turns into just an another identity politic and identity politics are how people sell you stuff identity yeah. politics are because then you're in a demographic and then you can be marketed to so the, the witches all need their strip mine crystals and the druids all need their white robes and the ceremonial magicians all need their trolley replica sword or whatever it is the circles circles and, and all, uh, yeah you, know, you have to all the stuff yeah um, and there's yeah. there's a level at which some of those things are useful, but I think we've passed the peak point of usefulness and are now just in this realm of everything is to be bought or sold. You accumulate stuff and then you go, well, I'm going to become really good at this so I can start selling courses so that occultism is part of a consumerist paradigm. That there's nothing countercultural about it, that there is nothing even individual about it. It's almost like a pyramid scheme these days, you know, where you go and do a year of a shamanism training and then turn around the next year and go, oh, I'm going to train shaman. Or <laughs> and all with a hefty price tag that there used to be more community to community and increasingly becomes more and more of a sales funnel. And I get that people have to make a living, but I'm old and I'm grumpy and I don't like consumer culture. <laughs> Hence living in rural Ireland. I'm not even that old. I'm like 36. I know, you're younger than me. <laughs> but, but that doesn't change. Uh, like, like the Kabbalists always said, uh, maturity is a, is a spiritual uh choice not a biological factor yes certainly yeah so maturity has nothing to do with our physical age and you're just uh you've just uh done the work to become a grumpy old man and so therefore you are a grumpy old man Amen. Yeah. yeah well you're you're still a part of the community of magic in ireland which is really great it's uh it's good to know that it's developing and still moving forward there um with uh 
yeah with opportunities for people uh do you think that there's um much interest uh, over there or is there is there is there sufficient or insufficient uh resources for people who want to pursue those studies in ireland okay so there has been a shift in the last number of years in ireland and unfortunately it's towards consumerism so there was a time when communities was around groups you would have a moots or meetings or whatever people would meet up and you know there were covens that were closed groups and druid groves and occult orders and things like this and increasingly there are fewer and fewer of those less and less initiates that are reaching the point where they start groups or support groups and more oh now now that i've done that i can sell you this tradition so buy my course for 99 99 99 and that increasingly that is what it comes down to that community turns into a sales funnel and that sounds very very cynical i know but for me this is what a culture is turning into it is just another aspect of consumerism and this is also in ireland this is why I will work with a very limited number of groups or will only work with groups that basically don't leverage a huge amount in fees or dues or courses that you need to get significantly better at this. You know, I, I take the whole question of Rosicrucianism seriously. Uh, mm, yeah. No claim save to heal and this gratis esoteric transmissions shouldn't be your main income. It can be part of your income. But again, I'm, I don't know. Maybe I'm just a crotchety old man. This is what I keep being told. I'm just a crotchety old man. This is the way the world is now. This old way of doing things is gone. That was grassroots and pioneering. And for me, much more exciting. Mm -hmm. But one yeah. can still pioneer groups or small groups of people that choose to work in a different way in contradiction of that predominant paradigm. Yeah. But mostly I'm just grumpy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to have that... to uh, uh, release a, a nine, nine, $99.99 course and like take one of the sentences from this podcast and like misquote you as, as to make it look like you're endorsing it. Like, oh, he only 99 Frater Demna. Yeah. <laughs> and then it can just be a course on how to teach other people magic for money. <laughs> the things you should say and not say so you don't tip off experienced veterans that you don't know your shit. <laughs> Question, I'm sure that you... course will come along soon, actually, by someone. <laughs> but Dorsey is not just magic. It's everywhere. You know, things yeah. that were a recreation, like you do calligraphy because it brings you joy or you make pottery. It's now described, it's a very common phrase in the United States, that everything becomes your side hustle. Yeah. That nothing well, okay. for community or for enjoyment or because it, you really burn for it, but because it's a potential business opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Nothing I mean, wrong with a... if that's your business, 
But the idea that everything has to be a commodity is what's wrong. Yeah, yeah. If you're um, really good and you're really specialized and you're selling something that people really want, as opposed to something that are really need, as opposed to something that you're really trying hard to sell and market to people, and that's why they want it. <laughs> that, that's, mm-hmm. that's a fundamental difference. You can still provide valuable services to people that have a genuine value to them. Very often, things don't have an inherent value to them. They only have a kind of almost cynical sales pitch to them. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, uh, it's something I've thought about. I've, I've talked to quite a few of the increasingly professional quote-unquote magicians in the scene uh, today, and they have some very interesting opinions and perspectives on, on the sort of the tradition that you and I come out of. Um, and some, in some areas I agree, in some areas I, I disagree. I think we have different views of it. Um, there's a trend now to look at magicians and define them by these ancient uh, lifestyle practices of like, this is what they did. And to be able to give it their full time, they had to you know, make a living and sell, sell their spell work to people and sell talismans to people. And you know, these, this, is, this goes back you know, over 10,000 years, for sure. Um, so they're identifying that as the model that they're following as professional magicians. And I have a lot of uh, sympathy for that because it is very hard to do things well if you do them just as a side hustle and not as your main profession. And um, I get that, the but same, there's, there's a critical uh, mass because yes. the problem isn't that there are professional magicians that do things really well. I mean, we've spoken before about some people that do magical like teaching or talismans or whatever to do really specialized work and you go okay that's worth paying for that's not the point the point is that everybody is now sold the idea that this is what they should aspire to yeah the the idea that this is what it is so some of these people the professional magicians have talked to me from the perspective of you just wish you could be like like us you just wish you were good enough to be professional at it and i've heard them talk about other magicians who are quote unquote trying to be professional and and the idea that you know they're they're trying but they might not get there as it's some sort of reflection on their skill as a magician and this has been said to me like well if they can't make it it's because their magic's not effective but if their magic was effective then of course they would become fully professionalized just like us because art means they have different priorities and different values and this and is something I don't see being considered by professional magicians. The idea that we actually might have fulfilled by the work that they do. Yeah. And this is something that is part of their life that just isn't for like, yeah, you, you know, they can reach out a little bit and belong to a community, but their, their aim isn't to make their first million, like, I don't know, selling talismans or something. Yeah. Or doing spell work for people. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I think it's better to teach people how to do their own spell work than to do anything for them. Um, and, you know, if you want to get into goetic evocation or, or trithemius method, yeah, build up, build the tools yourself. It's, it's if you want to buy some, find buy somebody, it's really great to, to build them yourself and learn those skills and, and enjoy like it's, it can be such an enjoyable process. It's really great to not cheat yourself out of that. Obviously, you probably can't make gold cake coated rings. 
unless you go learn how to do that. So you might have to buy a few things, which is fine. And thinking uh, is less difficult than you think. I I can I sense your your next new article in light ex, in the light extended through volume three. Mm, maybe a little a little how to on on electric gold i don't know whatever um i'm sure i'm sure that's that can be learned so that's that's cool to know that that's not that hard um yeah yeah very cool um i'm i'm just i just finished casting three sigillum damettes and uh have to, and, and got some carving tools to start the carving process which will be fun um i'm gonna make one with uh agla on the back in hebrew instead of english mm -hmm. I don't know what you think of that. I know some people will tell me it, it therefore is invalid, but I don't know if, if I think you should use Hebrew when you can or try it. when you can. Well, that's what I'm going to do, man. That's, I always, that's always my approach. Try it, I'm going to try it, it out. <laughs> yeah. If it works, do it again. If it doesn't, try something different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, when we this, talk about... It, these are the laws of non-dogmatic magic. I, magic either works or it doesn't. If it Hallelujah. doesn't change something. Yeah. You hear that, folks? Just go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's fun. It's fun to work with make, make to make things and, and take a break from study or, or or ritual work and and go and yeah, get into some wood sanding or painting. It's just it's a nice uh, it's a nice salty break from all the mercury and sulfur, you know. But you yeah. do know, of course, you know, you're the guy who built an entire Golden Dawn temple for 500 quid. Yeah, awesome. So, yeah, it's it's it is a little disconcerting, I guess, to see all the new magicians, people training to be magicians for the sake of 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 making it a profession and selling. selling. But yeah, it, I don't know. I think I think I think it might be a part of that pendulum swing a little bit, um, but also I think there's another side to it, which is the, just the basic shift in professions and careers and and livelihoods for humanity in general these days. I think some of what we're talking about actually could maybe be chalked up to the general shift in how everyone's making a living. Right? It's you can't do the old things that you did before and and live a good life in a lot of ways it's, right it's solid reliable jobs are hard to come by that will last for a lifetime these things don't exist anymore yeah. people are doing it in a geek economy or they are and and yeah in a way you could say magic is kind of a gig economy from a certain perspective uh, but i i think it says that there's something fundamentally wrong with the world that the world is so broken now that people can work a 40-hour week and not make enough to keep a roof over their head or food in their stomachs or and, and i say a 40-hour week because like this is a european holy grail but uh yeah we, we, we like, never we we've never had that in my lifetime here it's always been 60 to 100. in the united states or in canada like in the united states i always find it when like u.s tourists come to ireland and you kind of see them running around to all the things that they want to see like headless chickens <laughs> uh four things a day or something and then you realize because these people get like 10 days of holidays a year or something <laughs> yeah yeah 
that's that's I, it i mean in europe you, yeah we don't get six weeks paid vacation to actually live our lives every year we get we get barely a spring break 10 days or whatever and a lot of professions don't get paid vacations i've never had a paid vacation but every, but every europe, yeah. europe is slowly turning into you know part of this capitalist superstructure in which you can't afford to live, you can't afford to eat, you can't afford to live in a city, you can't afford not to live there if you want to work. Uh, so basically it's a system of you're damned if you're doing, you're damned if you don't, and people are working hard to try and find something that will lift them out of that, the mediocrity of the grind. Yeah. Especially in, in, in my area of the world, it's like you can live in a city and potentially make a ton more money, but then you're paying $3,000, $4,000, $3,400 for a one-bedroom apartment. So you're not saving anything from all that money you're making, and you'll never own anything, and you'll be happy. And, <laughs> but if you live out, outside of the city, you make less money, but again, you'll, and your expenses are lower. Um, but because you're making less money, you still can't save up to then own something. So, yeah. And so I, I have a lot of sympathy as the point for, for, um, you know, people finding alternative ways to practice their, their training and professions. Isn't this why, why a lot of people come to magic though? Magic is by its very nature, certainly in the Talmaturgic sense, it's very aspirational. Of course. Gender when there's a lot less sort of class mobility than there used to be that you can't really aspire to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps as it were yeah that's that, a, that's an illusion that's a, that was a, that was a joke from the beginning I, I always find that funny pull yourself up by your own bootstraps it's literally an impossibility it's saying that it's not <laughs> a possible thing <laughs> but, hey hey if you just do it enough times trickle down will solve the rest trickle down that's the answer yeah, yeah but yeah, magic yeah. by its very nature is aspirational because you're talking about creating change synchronicities whatever you want to call it that maybe improve your odds in a system that's essentially stacked against you i mean and i say this because like even in ireland where education is relatively free you know, you only get certain kinds of training when you come from a certain postcode or have a certain background or have a certain amount of privilege behind you. And because now there's even less class mobility than there's ever been in the world, except, and, you know, we all aspire to these great entrepreneur stories or these great sort of sudden millionaire stories because they are the, the exception to the rule. And magic is the exact same thing. It is aspirational because it hedges the odds in your favor. Mm -hmm. so this is why people want to and why they should do magic. Because who doesn't want some sort of an advantage? Right. Yeah. Um, I love but, that you just gave an argument for why everyone should do magic. <laughs> why everyone should do magic but this is also why i think magicians shouldn't be selling magic because if they were really good magicians they could just hedge whatever it is that they're doing 
in their favor and okay there are a few people that specialize in magic but rather than trying to sell magic as a kind of pyramid scheme do magic improve your life if you're a good magician then you should be able to make it work yeah is that too cynical well it's like um, it's like that question why are so many magicians poor if magic okay. really works why are so many magicians poor and yes you could say people have different priorities but part of it is that there are plenty of people that just don't get particularly spectacular results yeah well there's a lot to that like that's probably a, a whole other conversation for another time but part of the piece some of the pieces of that puzzle are um well there's the there's the the fact that people who are drawn to devotional or initiatory paths generally are very similar to the kinds of people that in ages past would have purposefully found a spiritual path that um was um that eschewed money and and took a vow of, of poverty which means just only subsisting on what you require to live. Um, so a lot of, I think, people who approach, who get into magic do have that mentality. Um, I certainly did. Um, and I've certainly turned down many lucrative opportunities in life because I was devoted to what I was doing magically and couldn't do both, right? If you take certain jobs, you just don't have any energy left to do anything else in life, period. Like one of my, my best friend in the world, he, he can't even hang out with people usually because he's so physically exhausted by the end of his day. He, he's basically a blacksmith and works with metal and, you know, high, intensely physical labor. And he said to me when I was at his house, just uh, finally again the other day, uh, we've seen each other twice since September when I've been back in Canada. Um, though technically, of course, that we haven't seen each other at all because that would have been illegal. Um, but he's like, it's not that I don't want to hang out or do rituals or, or just do anything. He's like, I can't, I'm too exhausted every day by the end that, that, of course. So you have to turn down opportunities in life sometimes um, if you, if you're passionate about a spiritual path. And so that's a, that's a factor. The initiatory obedient, uh, a vow of poverty sort of mentality is a big factor that I think gets discounted because, and invalidated because we live in a capitalist society where it's like, if you don't want all the money and all the toys then there's something wrong with you or you're just covering up for being some sort of loser then there's also, then there, hmm? most of the initiatory societies though are theurgic rather than thaumaturgic exactly which is to say they're, they're all focused on higher spiritual aims yeah. <laughs> they're, they're not training sufficiently for people to get what they need like maslow's hierarchy of needs you're always going to have an unstable foundation until you have a certain amount of security yeah, exactly which is why i think we should have trained people more in in our order to to uh use magic to help their lives on a mundane level but there was a big push to to sort of keep people focused on their order work and to not worry about making a living so much um, of course, that that came to a that would caused a problem because at the same time, Zinc was of course wanting money. <laughs> you know, he wanted money, but he he encouraged people not to go make money in their lives. You know, for the sake of the spirit, um, and that's an interesting dichotomy in general, right? Like, you're you know where your where your heart is, there your treasure lies, 
but at the same time if you're sleeping on the street that's what good is that to to you or anyone else that's not exactly what what the gospels meant when they talked about light having life and life abundant mm. or saint paul sorry yeah um right so we're meant to have life christ came so that we could have life and life abundant this is one of the oldest most authentic jesus ideas because it comes from paul and not from the gospels written way later it came from the original writings and and this it's hard to have life abundant if you're not able to feed yourself well this is and it what are you going to do you want to pastor an initiatory system you know come closer to godlike state come out the other side and still live under a bridge that just doesn't make sense yeah like no, magic in practical sense makes sense yeah like um you know i was i was telling telling the people I, my students like if, if we want to use one of these heptarchial beings for to acquire wealth what's it like have a reason why you want that wealth like if you want to be able to afford to go get some more accoutrements like a build your own a table of practice get the the ring of wonders and, and lamans and these nice little things that's a really good reason to do a ritual to get the money for that purpose it's for accomplishing that goal and i wish there had been more focus on that in the people that that are order trained back in the day because they might have been a little bit more uh, hopeful at seeing some of the results of that um at the same time it does have that double edge to the sword so it's a it's a tough um, one yeah i don't think we can uh, even this dilemma and even making magic practical in the sense that you can't just do magic. You also have to do stuff that increase your odds of synchronicity. So, you know, rather than just do a sigil, you know, like create a sigil that you then embed in the background of all the CVs that you're sending out to like a hundred jobs. There you go. There you go. Which I have done. Yeah. <laughs> You've done that. Hey, we, for those who stuck around to the end of this podcast, you got a personal uh, spell tip that I have actually never heard of direct from. Just fade this. it as a watermark in the background. People won't even take it in consciously. Grant Morrison would be tickling himself. Or as he says, it works. It really works. <laughs> yeah. I love him. I love that. When I, you know, that, that, that whole, when that video came out, it was like, whoa, I was laughing. My, I was like, oh, I was being myself laughing. Cause I was like, saw the numbers of how many people had watched it. And I, the number clearly reflected more than just all the occultists in the world. It was a lot of just regular people who watched this thing. And they're probably like, wait, what, what's going on? Is he serious? You definitely can tell he's serious by the end of that rant. And it is a beautiful, gorgeous rant of rants um it's the karmara of rants and it's clear he really means what he's saying and then he tells everyone exactly how they can do the most basic thing possible and then he goes on and on to say how effective it is um and he's a very successful guy and he's claiming his success comes from doing this and obviously but but he's not pouring the fluid into an empty vessel he's pouring it into a cleaned and purified vessel that is his artistic skill that he's developed of course and the rest of it is being, right? This is part of the initiatory model of, of alchemy and transformation that we follow um, advisedly or not, depending on how you view the alchemical tradition. So for, for all you young people who don't know, 
Many years ago, Grant Morrison appeared at a disinformation conference, drunk and eat up to his eyeballs, and gave the most amazing talk. <laughs> it's true. I mean, he even tells you, watch out, in half an hour, I'm going to come up on ecstasy. <laughs> <laughs> He just arrives out on stage, and the first thing he does is he screams. And from there, it just gets better from like talking to like extraterrestrial beings in Timbuktu to sigils to magic. And you know what is just imbued with this fuck you positivity that we were speaking about earlier. Yeah. Saying oh, yes to life and everything that it can bring. But to do that, you need to actually live. You can't like live in a basement, uh, not work, not socialize, not like to, to be a decent occultist, you need to be a very well-rounded human being. And that also goes back to what you're saying about us in our tradition, at least living out of that very pure original Rosicrucian ethos of these ideas of, and Frater Acker in his beautiful new book, uh, Rosicrucian Magic, which I'm halfway through, really highlights the others not the heel gratis but he highlights the other part which is the the living in the world and being very actively engaged and naked in the world um he's he talks about how uh, uh frater acker that is talks about yeah how the rosicrucian path and the magical that we work requires in fact us wearing the clothes of that land and, and fitting in and being fully engaged so if you want that that path of magic to work for you which we do then you do need to, yeah, you can't just be sitting in your, in your hermitage off in the middle of nowhere. That would be a, that's a different path. And that's a practice we can all engage in here and there. I mean, who doesn't want to go spend a, a month with doing a retreat with David Heimsmith at his cottage? Sounds like a, not a bad thing to do if you can, right? Um, but then you get back into the world and, and you take chances and you, you beat your, but that quote's great by Goethe, be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid. I think that's the origin of yeah. Crowley's true will thing, actually. It's, it's a better version of it, the Goethe one. Yeah, certainly so. But this whole question, this be bold. So yes, you have to live in the world, but the other side of the Rosicrucian work is the Rosicrucian stated that their intention was this absolute and complete reformation of the world, of culture, of religion, of science, everything. So... It's not just the world as it is in its sort of capitalist, soul-crushing self that it is now, but the question, what could the world be? What can be created out of this? What alchemical gold can be created from this dross? Because Rosicrucianism, yes, it's of the world, but it's at the same time world-creating. And to have one without the other, you remove all the magic from. This is why magic and Rosicrucianism fit so well together because Rosicrucianism calls for reformation. It calls for transformation. It calls for a future-oriented, fuck you, positivity. Fuck you, positivity. I love it. That should be our t-shirt, brother. You're now going to have to put an expletive on this podcast. You know what? An awful lot. <laughs> you know, it used to let me choose whether I put an e-warning on my episodes, and they don't do that anymore. 
Even if I'm just doing a reading from Thomas Merton without commentary <laughs> and it's all very, very sedate, I still get the E thing. Uh, they're just like, yeah, you've said too much shit to uh, uh, be recommended to younger people, um, which is true. I Guilty mean, until proven innocent. Yeah, well, you know, our sponsor is uh, Two for One Adrenochrome, of course. Get your uh, Adrenochrome today, <laughs> wherever Adrenochrome is sold. Um, <laughs> God. the uh, Yeah, it's great. It's so good to talk to you again, man. I, I loved our conversation before so much, and it was su such a, a atrocious connection. I'm, I'm very sorry about that. Um, people did, in fact, go back and listen to it because they knew I was talking with you again to to see if they had any questions but I, I i'm sorry to everyone who has listened to that and tried to make sense of some of it but i did leave it up of course because you say such awesome things and i really really like that i'll probably still leave it up though it could maybe come down after this just to save some people's ears some of the distortion is bad but yeah uh, yes. hey, any, I, uh, any, hmm? in this world people do not forgive bad audio so i, I think don't. we can go all right I'll, 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 I'll retire that episode and make it, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it there for the exclusive people just so it's on record if they want it. But um, yeah, take it off the public queue because uh, people might come to that and be very uh, confused. So yeah. Any, uh, any favorite, uh, favorite of the Golden Dawn rituals? Sometimes I ask this of, of a Golden Dawn Adepti uh, what their favorite rituals are um, from the main corpus and the main you see i like the practical things i like the building of things or building talismans from the rose lemon and things like this i mean mm -hmm. it's 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 all good it's all I, good. I still do 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 my pentagram rituals and things like this but you know mo most of these things have context and their context is usually in relation to something else before something or it's after something or it's in preparation for something so like if you're going to live a life that's really lived everything is context mm. and like the lesser ritual the pentagram is the only one that is bread and butter it doesn't really matter what you're doing it opens you up to invocatory initiatory sort of possibilities and closes you off when you don't want to. Yeah. But, and, and then other rituals are much more contextual. Yeah. You mentioned before people should move on from, from the basic LRP ritual. Um, if someone is practicing on their own and, and they're, they're finding them, do you have any recommendations on a, the path to follow with with in the initial stages of preliminary ritual work and development a lot of First people ask about the middle pillar like how often they should do that compared to the L, L, lrp rituals and you know a lot of people are incorporating the lesser invoking ritual the hexagram a lot more today than we would have in our time when it was exclusive to the inner order for example okay so you, you love your pentagrams and you're doing them every day next thing you should be doing rather than anything else is the 
I suppose, invocation of the Lord of the Universe, this rubric, holy art thou, Lord of the Universe, holy art thou, whom nature hath not formed, holy art thou, the vast and mighty one, Lord of the light and of the darkness. Because if you're really serious about Golden Dawn work, this is what, what is brought into and channeled through the seat in the East. So if you want to connect with the Golden Dawn as a tradition, use this during your day. You can break it up into parts or you can repeat it at set points during your day that, so that you can reaffirm your connection with this, well, the Golden Dawn is solar imagery, but it's more than just solar imagery. It is the light behind the light, the intangible, the sun that sits just below the horizon so that you can't fully see it in its complete glory, but that you have some sense and orientation and directionality that comes out of it. The sun is rising. This is hardcore invocatory work, actually. Yeah. And a lot of people just don't do it at all. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, yeah. And, you know, it depends on your tradition. In the Stella Matutina, you have these daily rhythms that... Tony Fuller has obviously made a little bit more public and they've also been published in The Lantern, which is published in New Zealand. I think it's maybe in the second or third edition of that. Um, but those also have this invocatory quality that is a little bit more grade specific. Yeah, we, we, we did those in all of our grades. Uh, what a lot, a lot of people re recently in the last year have come to me and, and said that they've like, you know, that they, they described their, their beginning of getting into Golden Dawn work. And almost universally, most of them say, uh, talk about uh, the grounding their, their Golden Dawn practices in Resh, which confused me for a while until I figured out what they were talking about, because um, I'm familiar with, I was familiar with Resh, but I didn't know what it was called um being you know and but so a lot of people don't real didn't realize that the gd even has its own versions of that sort of thing not just that but even different ones per grade so they even our our version of resh changes throughout the grades even and that's yeah, something I mean, that's, it's good for people to let to know to know that certainly the daily rhythms of the sm are uh every time i hear sm i just think sadomasochism <laughs> yeah right <laughs> And you can't say OSM because then you're talking about like the group Scarborough's in. Okay, yeah. Um, I don't know much yeah, about that group. In sadomasochism. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Yes. Not all, or, not all orders are torture, but some of them certainly are. <laughs> So, so yeah, in, in the style of Matutina, these daily rhythms obviously have a fourfold nature. So it has directionality. It has the splitting of the day in a similar way to Resh. You know, it's, it's all that and a packet of biscuits. Yeah. And it's invocatory. This is the whole thing. Like, if you want to create change, you need invocation. You need 
and invocation shouldn't be misunderstood as calling something to sit in your chest or something uh, or to be possessed by something. It is to be in the presence of real working energies that you are calling things into your sphere of sensation, but even slightly outside that, that you just encounter, I suppose, synchronicities that have the potential to cause change. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, it definitely is part of the magic that we see as putting ourselves in, in the flow, um, as people say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And actually, then either the middle pillar or um, the, the working of the tree in the aura, which is also out there, um, and which is really a prelude to um, the middle pillar. You're talking and about the four pillars. Are you talking about the four pillar working with the head and dot? Well, there is in Stella Matutina, there is the, the like a building of the tree in the aura. Right. And yeah. it's essentially like rather than just the middle pillar, yeah, you build a whole tree that overlays your body. Absolutely. I can't remember what grade we started doing that in, but I, it might have been Philosophist or Portal. But yeah, that's a good exercise. Uh, um, and yeah, there's, there's other exercises that, that that leads to, but I'm not sure uh, how common they are to tradition, to tradition and, and speci- or how group-specific they are. But groups do develop their own versions, but it's, and it's not hard to, but there are a lot of also older GD tradition ones that are quite, quite good. Okay, here's the other question. Like, what, do you, what does one mean by Golden Dawn? Or like most things that you talk about now are sort of post-Golden Dawn, big ceremonial magic, some lesser banishing rituals here and some hexagram rituals there. You know, join an order or even do the Cicero's self-initiation book. It's a wonderful book. Uh, it goes really well with their... Um, building a magical temple book because you kind of need both of them together and uh, there you go there's another reason to buy them and not download them uh, support living authors uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah I mean I mean this is the question do you want to be a golden dawn initiate then you have to go through the golden dawn system and do grades and things like this so it's not just a question of okay what rituals do I move on to next because yeah. the rituals are contextual to a system. And yeah, just because they've been abstracted from that system doesn't mean that, yeah, if people say, I, I want to do the Golden Dawn thing, do they actually mean they want to do the Golden Dawn thing or do they mean they want a couple of Golden Dawn rituals and, yeah, sort of vague post-lodge magic um, sort of ceremonial magic kind of thing? Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's a very vague sort of Donald Michael Craig modern magic kind of, and I'm not saying that that's a bad book or anything, but I'm saying that it's just something very different from what Golden Dawn is. Yeah, it doesn't represent the Golden Dawn tradition, that's for sure, and, and neither does uh, say Damien Eccles, but but he's still using many of our main features in new and different ways and some old ways it's it's quite yeah there's so much eclecticism going on it's really fascinating how much people are actually willing to appropriate golden dawn practices and 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 symbols that are that are uh 
gained through initiation and grade work, um, but reject the system itself and its whole aim, you know, um, yeah. which is why, which is why I don't think it's wrong that Damien Eccles uses a sword mudra instead of the sign of the enterer. That makes perfect sense to me. He never went through the initiation and got the grade signs that include the sign of the enterer and sign of silence. Those are grade signs. It, I, I sometimes think of it as like, you, if you want to use them, great. But if you want to use the sword mudra instead, fine. That might be even more appropriate. Just like it's it's weird. It would be weird for me to use the master mason, mason handshake just because I think it's powerful um, when I meet people. If I'm not a master mason, I've never been initiated. Right. So it's yep. it's interesting how people pick and choose from different systems to to build their own and how and what parts of the practice and the theory behind that ritual they accept and which parts they reject it's very fascinating and it's perfectly fine you know these things are published yeah. once it's in a book you don't really have control over what people do with it but it's Fuck not necessarily golden dawn and let's just call a spade a spade and you know if you want to do golden dawn magic do golden dawn magic work some version of a curriculum um and if you don't yeah that's fine perfectly fine then don't call it golden dawn magic yeah i don't think you need to because because one thing that's clear from the initiations is there's a lot more going on than people realize i mean anyone can find that out by just reading uh, zaleski's commentary for example um you'll yeah, be like holy shit talking. what yeah you'll Happy be like wait what the fuck's happening it's like yeah a ton of stuff um and that these officers and initiates are trying to bring to the candidate at each of the ceremonies um there's a lot going on and you can't replicate it with a, with with any book you can do something else though you can do other things and those things aren't necessarily less powerful um or transformative it, uh, that that's where it's all up to you and how how seriously you work it of course i have a uh before we you know wrap up i have a, a this sunday i'm doing a free open class to my cyber guild for anyone who wants to go to hermeticmysteryschool.com and sign up to my free cyber guild you can get the free live lecture that i'll be giving this sunday at 5 p.m pdt on tatwas and uh and uh I was wondering if you had any thoughts because tattoo working is one of my favorite things to do and it was one of Yates's favorite things to do and I'm wondering if you have any insights or thoughts to share with people on tattoo working. At first you kind of go well they're eastern and you don't really fit in the western golden dawn system and uh, 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 no. but you know what they work and like if you go into initiatory wicca, very often they'll use the tattoos because they oh, really? work. I didn't know wicca had used them ever. That's oh, of course it makes sense that anyone who's who would try them out would keep using them though. Yeah. Oh. So like, isn't this the question? Do they work? And you know, from a certain perspective, you see that theosophical influence on the golden dawn but well they were being know, lectured this, on at that time when mathers was forming the golden dawn and he just sort of appropriated it he's like that's coming with me what well, this the whole thing you know this there's a dichotomy of eastern magic western magic eastern tradition western tradition high magic low magic and i think one of the great gifts of the golden dawn is it was syncretic and it went what's useful yeah and 
I'm not saying everything in the Golden Dawn is like super useful, but like the, the underlying principle of asking that question first and foremost, uh, yeah, was useful. But uh, the tatwas, yeah, they they work. I mean, what more does one want from it? Do you um do you tend to uh, uh, call uh, angels or spirits within the tatwas, or have a guide that you work with repeatedly for each of the main tatwas over over repeatedly? Mainly used them as astral doorways because I first encountered them through again through Harvey Brennan, um in sort of a very just try it out and see what happens experimental kind of sense um the thing is you can add lots of layers to it and go okay here's all these elemental overlayers and here's you know these and of, of course in the golden dawn you have these um elements like air of fire and all this kind of thing that the, the tatvas aren't just a, a simple elemental system, although they are an elemental system. Yeah, the GD um, added sub-elements. Yeah, so these sub-elements, um, I look at it this way, it, it's a long-term project to work upon. And uh, some people have very similar outcomes, some people have vastly different outcomes. But in terms of a training for visionary magic, to use geometric forms as doorways for visionary experience and to be able to extend that in such a way that you have something tangible at the end. I think it's, you know, a, primarily a training in visual magic. And, and a very powerful you know, one too. No. Just the thing, it works. This is, this is what I keep saying. Lots of people use tatvas that are like avowedly into Western systems, all about the Western stuff, and then they'll use tatvas because they work. And like visionary magic is a fundamental part you know, of Golden Dawn magic in an awful lot of ways. If you look at the projection of the god forms, if you look at the inserting of certain symbols into the sphere of sensation, the Golden Dawn is all about um yeah sort of visionary magic but it's also about lodge-based masonic style magic it's just that they are over layered and people often only see one level they go oh, it's ceremonial magic with the funny ones and the walking in circles and mm -hmm. that's what it is that's not all it is like you have very stripped down magic very often in the yeah. some of the flying rolls or in the activities of Florence Fire and the Sphere Group, like they didn't have this super overly elaborate way of doing things. What they did was very visual. Uh, and ceremony has its place and visionary stuff has place, but it works best if they work hand in hand. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Tactics are good training and that's what they're for. They are a training ground. They do. Where do they appear in the curriculum, actually? They're well, appearing still in the outer order. They were originally in 5.6, and I know that for sure because um, in Yeats's notes for the Celtic Mysteries, he outlines what grades he actually wants them to appear in. And there's a note by one of the adepts who was working with him in the Celtic Mysteries that, that the practices he just described um, 
should be kept secret because they're five six inner order only um and not and that this is an inner order technique and should not be shared in specific the technique that she was referring to in her amendment uh, to Yates's notes on including the tatwas at a certain stage and, and how to use them uh, was simply the visualization of the self moving into the, the card or through the doorway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I, I obviously order, I don't know how, I don't know how soon the, the, the inner order dropped them tatwas into the outer order. I think there was a lot more fluid transmission of teachings in the early first 10 years than people would like to think, you know, especially some people think there was that there was a set curriculum at a certain point and it was fixed and that everything before that or everything after that is a, is a innovation or, or a change to the true curriculum. But I don't believe it's possible to say that at such and such a point, we have a codified true curriculum that everything else should be tested against to determine whether or not it's dogmatically correct. I think that's a flawed way of thinking about it like just false i don't think you can say this is how this is when it was true this is when the curriculum was fully finished it was never finished ever right um that was an, leads me to a, the, the last real question i was excited to ask you that i should i wanted to ask you earlier um like because so much was brought into the the tra sm tradition through falcon and, and his wife and all of those people um including uh practices from rudolf steiner that called the processes that were then later removed because they were considered too powerful even for the inner order of, of Falcon Stella Matutina at the time. Do you know anything about the processes? Not by this name, certainly. Yeah. Um, my first thought was that they were the rhythms, but that doesn't make sense because they wouldn't dismiss a set of practices like that were that are that simple no matter how powerful i, they I are. know that certainly in where are they have what was referred to as the etheric link yes which link one directly to the being of christian rosenkreutz and that came to falcon via steiner yeah but, but that then was, there was really this... the crown of their system that once one had become a one true adepthood that that was then okay you get your direct link but like Falcon, you have this whole thing. Okay, so there are Ruth Steiner, part of the Theosophical Society, also went through Masonic rites of Memphis and Misraim. Some and people like to deny this, but there's paperwork to back this up. Oh, yeah, you can't deny that. Sorry? Yeah, you can't deny Steiner's Memphis and Misraim and, and, and Masonic oh, connection. Do they? Uh, but, what fucking idiots? Well, wouldn't go that far, but the point is there is paperwork for that. But then he went on and formed an esoteric section of what was referred to as either the Misraim Dienst or Misraim Service in English, yeah. um, the Ritual Cognitive Section, or the so-called Mystica Eterna. And this originally functioned as the German esoteric section of the Theosophical Society. And it was an initiatory system with nine grades. It had some li links to the Gold und Reusenkreuzer, um, which was a Rosicrucian organization in the 17th century that both the SRIA and the Golden Dawn took its grade system from in slightly altered form. Yeah. Um, but it was essentially sort of 
esoteric Freemasonry with lots of Rosicrucianism thrown in. So two Golden Dawn people got involved in that, no, more than two, maybe, I think also um, Mrs. Felton got involved with that also. But there was um, a man by the name of Meekin. Yeah. Um, Dr. Falcon, And I'm not sure if his wife was involved at this stage. But basically, Meekin published a lot of Bruce Steiner's works in English and things like this and was back and forth. And Falcon went through the initiation and decided, I want to take some of this. And although a lot of Golden Dawn people aren't aware of it, there is an existing correspondence between Meekin and Rudolf Steiner and the Rudolf Steiner archives um, that basically showed that Rudolf Steiner said, well, he doesn't have authority to take all these things from this system. And this era is where a lot of Falcon's Rudolf Steiner connections come from. So that right lasted from, I want to say 1906 to, between 1913 and 1915, it was closed down during the First World War and was never really properly opened up again. Uh, yeah. And Bruce Steiner then went on to doing things in a very different way. He still had some esoteric work and that was eventually restructured in 1924 as the School of Spiritual Science, where it became a more public organization. Yeah. Um, but he experimented variously with the esoteric work. And a lot of the material from these esoteric lessons ended up in the mystery dramas that Bruce Steiner produced in the year prior, years prior to 1913 also, I think from 1909 onwards. Yeah. But, I loved being in those mystery dramas in Walder School. I got to, I got to do the devil one year after I graduated to come back. I got to come back and do the devil, but it was the in the Three Kings play. So I was the Araman version of the devil instead of the Lucifer version of the devil. Which, for, if you don't know anthroposophy, that's a whole thing. He wrote a there's a series of lectures called Araman and Lucifer, which is really interesting. Anyway, great. It's really that's the mystery plays and the development and inclusion of them by Steiner and 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 also the additional ones outside of the main you know, kid-friendly Waller School ones that he incorporated. Like, there's a whole tradition of other ones that you're talking about. Um, I think it's, it's, it's really awesome that he took the psychodrama of initiation from ancient times and just said, look, I know what this was meant to be, and I'm going to give it to you in a way that it's acceptable today as mystery plays. Yeah, it's essentially open mysteries, this democratizing of initiation science. But the question of how much Rudolf Steiner had an influence on the Golden Dawn, that, that's complex and questionable. There oh, yeah. Most of the influences seem to be on the Stella Matutina directly. However, there is one interesting synchronicity, which is through the Frere Antique, the Wokwa, uh, the of ancient brothers of the Rose Cross. It's usually abbreviated as FA or plus C. It was sort of an alchemical organization. F-A-A-R-R -R plus C. Yeah. Yeah, for those who want to look it up. And basically, Ruth Steiner was a member of this and is attributed in their history as a member of this. And so was uh, William Westcott. Oh, interesting. 
William Wynne Westcott. And they were actually successive grandmasters of that organization. Oh, holy according shit. To that organization's oh history, historical documents, which means they probably had very significant <laughs> interactions. Yeah. Oh, my God. And That's huge. If not, if not the, yeah, I should send you the documents around that. But Please. if, <laughs> if, even if Ruth Steiner didn't influence the Golden Dawn, there is definitely a shared history because Westcott was known for basically collecting all the European esoteric initiations possible. That was like his thing. And Westcott, although matters is particularly held up as being the innovator of the Golden Dawn, Westcott, yeah, played a significant role in that and was certainly significantly better networked. Yeah, it's unfortunate there was such a disagreement between the two and hostility between the two toward the end, which has led to many people today discounting Westcott as a significant influence, despite the fact that Westcott produced his own versions of Enochian tablets that are incredibly colorful and intricate and a little bit crazy, definitely weird in the, in the right way. Um, people can see those very clearly on the Cicero's website where you can even get copies of, of them. They're, they're, they're fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, he, Westcott had a huge hand in developing, especially the Enochian magic in the Golden Dawn. And it's a shame that uh, people uh, sort of have forgotten how much a role he played, especially given his, yeah. It's impossible that Ruth Steiner and Westcott didn't know each other. Absolutely impossible. Yes because they were successive grandmasters they, they hung out at the same place they had each other's duties and jobs there's probably a lot of communication between them necessarily and then you have this link between Rudolf steiner's esoteric section and the fact they were using material and grades from the golden rosenkreuzer and then how that influenced also the sria and the golden dawn but like they're relatively tentative i think most of the Grunt work of the Golden Dawn was fairly original and magical, whereas Rudolf Steiner was, you know, more of a mystic for all intents and purposes. Yeah, and and his is and his yeah his he he had an outward approach, um, definitely trying to live as a Rosicrucian and, and and be in the world and 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 make it better. Um, well, if you want to see world transforming, the Anthroposophy is a great example. And, you know, Ruth Steiner's early ritual work, he never really got to bring that into the later Anthroposophical Society, but certainly this early esoteric work would have been integrated into the second and third class of the School of Spiritual Science if Ruth Steiner hadn't died like a year after starting it and writing the first round of class lessons. So... Yes, people think yeah. of Rudolf Steiner's tradition as very mystical, but it was also very ritualistic. And in later years, he also founded a Christian church called the Christian Gemeinschaft or the Christian Community, which yeah. is a church out of anthroposophy. And, and they have like, a beautiful, huge cathedral type building in, in Berlin um, with amazing, the beautiful artwork and on the walls and everything. They have, they have a beautiful uh, Christian community church here in Vancouver as well that a lot of people go to. Yeah, and also gave services of offering and things for like uh, yeah, in they, the Waldorf schools. Yeah, it's a Rosicrucian Christian church 
they do the Eucharist, but all, all of this stuff's done with a full understanding of the layers of the aura that are getting impacted and different currents and rays of energy that are brought in. And like, yeah, they have seminaries. So I think one's in Germany and one's in the States for, for being trained as a, as a Christian community priest. Um, if you don't already have a master's of divinity, that is, or if you need to amend your studies. Um, it was something I considered for a while, of course. Um, but I don't know. I think they moved the seminary to Canada at one point to Toronto. Anyway. Yeah, who knows? But, yeah, interesting um, stuff. Wow, I had no idea about the Westcott connection, which is just fucking awesome. Um, but yeah, there, there is a history of that order that gives, like, I don't know how mythological that history is or how tangible it is, but like, it's definitely very solidly recorded. Yeah, well, Steiner was initiated by Rosen, Christian Rosenkreutz himself, right? Through because he was Christian Rosenkreutz is the reincarnated as Alois Mylander, who couldn't read or write, but was a famous Rosicrucian teacher and gave Steiner the etheric link, who passed it on to Felkin, and and it's now found in the then the Fade Ra and the the Sodalitas Rosea Crucis and all these things, right? This is the this is the story. Well, I think there's a lot of scholarship that needs to go on in relation to that. There are certain people that have released <laughs> some breadcrumbs, but also that are connected with very specific groups with possibly very specific things or agendas that they want to forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it, if one sort of goes through that and the proper documents come out and are cross-referenced, like somebody from one of these groups was denying the fact that Steiner was ever initiated into the right of memphis and misraim and the oh really never came from that and you're just there going there are literally within the last year documents published of like his initiation certs or whatever they are but there's paperwork very clearly linking steiner to these rights and yeah I'm you not, know i, I think I, it would be, be really good <laughs> I, I think it's really important that that information comes out and becomes well known, uh, if only for the Waldorf uh, and the Anthroposophical Society itself, because I was in Waldorf school in high school while I went through the Golden Dawn grades, which you can imagine how that was for them, for all my teachers and the whole community at, at large to know someone's, I went th right through the whole system and, you know, went, flew down to LA for my portal initiation and testing in grade 12 right before i did my grade 12 project right during easter vacation which we got two weeks for at a, at a strange time uh, well at easter unlike the spring break that some, that public school had um and and they were a little they didn't know how to deal with what i was up to really some of one of them was encouraging because he was a phd and a wise man but the rest were sort of scared of what i was up to to different degrees and i think a large part of that is because in the anthroposophical society because of when steiner died because of what he didn't get to finish in his work of institutions within the the schools and the, the societies um he, it's not they don't know yeah that he was involved that he was trained by these different groups they don't know that he learned and practiced rituals by these different groups as a result they tend to have a view of him as being a one-of-a-kind kind of saint a mystic of mystics that no one else should aspire to be like him you can't be like steiner you he was clairvoyant you can't be 
because that would take away from how special he is. No one can replicate what Steiner was or did because he was blessed and special. And well, that's well, not Steiner a path for the rest of said, us. These capacities can be cultivated. Capacities can be cultivated. These capacities can be cultivated. The other and thing yet, is anthroposophists don't want to know some of the historical record of Ruth Steiner's early life. They write these very romantic biographies of his early life, and but like the, the level of investigation that's involved is sometimes a little bit dubious. Some better than others, some a little bit more critical than others, but um, so yes, if, this whole if, if, idea that Rudolf Steiner reached into the spiritual world and just plucked these things out of the, the sky is, is just incredibly... Yeah. Yeah, they, they and didn't it's not believe... what he says necessarily either. I mean, he acknowledges that there are certain teachers that he had, like Carl Julius Schroeder, who is certainly almost a Mason, and uh, Felix the Herb Gatherer, who sort of had a Burmy sort of law of signature Paracelsian mm-hmm. link. I wouldn't be surprised if that's where the FARC connection came in and... Uh, the same with his Master M, which some people have speculated was Mylander. One will see how how the evidence for that lines up. I haven't seen a whole lot of tangibles other than sort of assertions that it is so. But no, yeah, I'm, well, I'm open to it. Hmm? I'm open to it. Like if, if yeah. I see something. You know. I think it would be good for the Anthroposophical Society to understand Steiner's life more fully and his training so that because they that they would give them some idea of how they could develop because I think they're all sort of stuck and because if at a certain point you discourage people from developing spiritually because you don't want them to be equal to or surpass the kind of wisdom or insight Steiner had and if you deny the fact that Steiner learned a lot of this stuff from a magical tradition and a spiritual living tradition that still exists it could open up doorways for them to learn those things too rather than just say I don't recognize that and anything and in any way that it sounds like Steiner just proves that it's you're just taking from him rather than from the common tradition that he came from yeah, I, I get in a lot of trouble because I speak to anthroposophical audiences and yeah, me too. very well versed in all of that. And uh, get in a lot of trouble for listening out all of his previous involvement and even speaking about the early esoteric section. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why they changed the na- titles people, of his books. You have these two sort of camps of mystery and beans and the people that are part of the general anthroposophical society and very often just ignore like his esoteric work in its form prior to 1924 when forward looking but also a bit um short-sighted in looking back yeah totally yeah so you know i hope i i because i have a lot of friends who are teachers now you know even some who i went to school with who are now teachers at waller schools around the world and um just i've got tons of roots in that community and and they they love a lot of them want to have a a more involved spiritual practice but they avoid the things that i think they would enjoy the most like trying out tatwas or any of the numerous things we have within a culture 
and that Steiner would have been familiar with uh, for, to practice, but a lot of them avoid that stuff because they're just not informed that this is stuff that informs Steiner and they need to hear that for them to accept it, you know? So hearing that it was stuff that Steiner avoided or dabbled in, but rejected, which isn't true, uh, would be, would be helpful, I think. Mm. I don't know, like a magical biography of Steiner is something we could use, like that, that teachers might, might enjoy, um, because it's helpful in a spiritual life to have spiritual practices and not just, not just pure ideology, really, you know, and yeah, he did outline exercises and practices, but not enough, in my opinion. I mean, otherwise, I would have just stuck with anthroposophy if it was enough. But it wasn't enough for someone who wanted to to I, understand I what Steiner was talking about. There's more than you think. Well, I've spent my whole life in that tradition. I, I'd, I'd be surprised if there's something I haven't heard of. Um, well, you know, there's class lessons. There's three major volumes of esoteric section work. Another section of uh, sort of mantras given to specific people, and each of the professional groups also has a specific meditative uh, cultivated practice the teachers have i think four or five different meditations the teachers are given once they get serious and then there's also the young increased the the youth circle who have a specific uh, task and meditative practice as well as the wider sort of esoteric work there, there, there's a surprising amount of stuff there once you dig in yeah, but uh, like like I like I say I I, I like the weirdness so yeah. I'm drawn to the particularly weird element of Steiner, whereas a lot of it is just pansophic social reform, reform education, reform agriculture, reform yeah. everything. And I well, think so... that that's just good Rosicrucianism, you know, yeah. be in the world, transform the world. Fuck yeah, we we'll have to talk. Yeah, <laughs> we'll have to talk more because uh, I'd be curious to hear about maybe some more stuff that I might not be aware of, and that would be cool. So we'll have to we'll have to get, talk about this personally sometime uh, a bit more. I'd love to check some stuff out that maybe I haven't seen. Um, there, that's one thing about Steiner. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff, but I'm not too familiar with some of the the perhaps esoteric section stuff that might not be promoted by the main anthroposophical society. Um, interesting. Cool. Yeah, I don't so, know what else we cover. Uh, we've. I'm so glad you've you've uh, had so much time to share with me today. I know uh, people... Have we put the world to rights yet? I think we have. We are going to have to split this into several parts. People will be listening for I don't know three, four hours or something. Well, I think you are a tremendous resource and lovely human being and fabulous uh, adept who I, I I encourage people to seek out and move to Ireland and stalk you in the countryside and, and uh, have a cuppa with you and pick your brain. So, so go do some workings under a hawthorn tree. Um, yeah, I'm glad that I want people to, to know about you and how, how awesome I think you are, man. Thank you for that very oddly, specifically Irish compliment. <laughs> Happy days. <laughs> Oh Jesus! Yeah. <laughs> well, and I love the roaming chat. Yeah, it has. Um, yeah, let's definitely uh do it again sometime. It'd be cool to it'd be cool to do a 
um, do a little uh, Irish round table. But I know we couldn't get Frater Yechida. He, he doesn't want to talk to talk publicly. I asked him. Yeah, I mean, in a way, I respect that. Oh, totally. I, it's I, just I, a shame, though, because I think it would be really, he'd, I think his voice would be a good one to have. Yes, I mean, he's a very erudite person. However, I think, you know, in terms of the occult maxims, just to keep silent is something also sorely lacking in our world. <laughs> And, you know, for, for me, something like this is just we chats and I treat it as we chats. But generally speaking, the, the less you speak and the less you accumulate and the less you go out of your way to try and teach others, the more likely it is that you're doing magic. And for me, I kind of go, yeah, that's good. We have to find a balance of that with, with a balance of new people being able to find the right information because if we all just got silent again which which we were for the longest time or like i was certainly the next thing you know you look around and you have people coming to you or finding you out or seeking you out or just developing practices that are based on a tiny bit of actual information and then they're just making up the rest and selling their club so we, we need to which, you know, like, like that's the reason for, you know, Zaleski's publications and Rigardi's is to, to make sure that people don't gatekeep this knowledge and say, oh, you don't have that document, but stick with me and one day I might show it to you. Yeah. Oh, it is a delicate balance, brother. Yeah. Between uh, those two things. One day. Hmm? I Sorry? firmly established the fact that I'm a grumpy old fashioned man and I think I've firmly established the fact that I'm an old, grumpy, old-fashioned man. And, uh, yeah, don't take anything I say to Uh-oh, you cut out. Uh-oh. <laughs> <Don't... laughs> I think we just lost him, folks. He cut out it. Don't take anything I say to And there he goes. He's gone. <laughs> drop we lost the call oh my god that's hilarious well folks thanks for joining us and don't think that was frater d frater demna find his writing in the light extended volume two on amazon and uh yeah he's fully gone uh cut out and like take his last advice to heart don't think anything too oh, we lost oh you you're back too. you came back you cut out just at don't think anything i say too and you cut out and i thought that was going to be a fabulous way to end but you manifested back brother okay <laughs> you can sign off properly now <laughs> possessed by the spirit of a grumpy old person never take yourself too seriously nothing worse than people to take themselves too seriously so Take whatever I say with a pinch of salt and uh, yeah, change yourself, change the world, live in the world, and fuck you, positivity. And up the raw. <laughs> <laughs> Chucky Erlaw. Oh, my who. Um, I, I think your Irish, your, I think your Irish uh, internet provider is giving us the nod. That's what's going on. Yeah. They're like, through over three and a half hours here, lads. Come on, shift. Yeah, the rest of Ireland needs internet. 
go move shift yeah the rest of ireland needs to needs to uh, watch stream some father ted and ross Naroon, the two best irish tv shows all right before you start cutting out again we'll say goodbye goodbye thank you for having a wee chat with me much love brother conks on packs have a wonderful evening it's 444 ciao ciao fuck you ciao. positivity fuck you positivity <laughs> Chuck your lot. Slon. Chuck your lot. Slon, slon. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk that's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk that's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk